Can I get a honk honk? One, two, one, two. Testing, testing. That wasn't a honk honk. Honk. Welcome to episode 6 of Miniatures Monthly at the Great and Crowbar. My name is Chris Thurston and I'm joined as ever by Tom Senior. Good day. Episode 6, Tom. Uh, 6. We've done it. 6 months. Which chaos god is that? Uh, None of, of them. them. Okay, well next month, that's when the real darkness comes to the podcast. Is it? 7? 7 is corn? No, 8 is corn. Oh. 9 is zinch. 7 is bing. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Siri. Which chaos god's number is 7? I shouldn't do that. I'll actually <laughs> I thought it was corn. I thought it was a seven-sided stuff. No, um, no, corn is definitely eight. Oh, okay. Definitely eight. It's because when um, when Khan shows up in uh, a Galaxy in Flames, mm. he bellows like, I'm on the eightfold path! And then gets hit by a lander edder. <laughs> oh, that's man. why, yeah. What that's, epic death. <laughs> it's not even a death. What well, an epic way of getting from eight to B. Speak of fun, but look, I'll look it up. Yeah. I'll commune with the Chaos Gods and they'll tell me. Okay. It might be anyway. Slanesh. It might be Slanesh. Mm. But who knows? Mm. Who can even say? Um, anyway, six is none of those numbers we just mentioned, but it is the number of this podcast mm. and arguably, hopefully, the least interesting thing <laughs> about this episode. So um, we've, we're recording this episode like a little bit earlier than we normally would relative to mm. when it's coming out um, because I'm traveling later in the month, so I won't be around to... Uh, to record and that means that there is an even greater danger than ever that stuff we talk about as news will be old news for boring old people hmm. by the time you listen to it but it might still be worth talking about stuff also yeah. stuff will probably be announced uh, as it was during the previous episode i think when all of these 40k yeah. which brings us to our first thing all of the new 40k starter boxes were announced so we talked a bunch on the last episode about how they've done a good job of sort of breaking down the age of sigmar box set games workshop that is breaking down the age of sigma box set into smaller chunks that you know you can pick up at more like a board game price point mm. than a giant box of miniatures price point and that has happened for 40k as well now good times it is yeah and it's interesting it, um given those models are snap fit and in colored plastic and things it seems like there's a reasonably good prospect as a sort of cheap and accessible board war game yeah, it's good to offer those different price points for people. I think like about Games Watch about five years ago, the barrier to entry was like you're gonna have to drop two hundred fifty pounds like for paints and for army and stuff to actually get into it. It mm. felt like you know on books you needed and, and that kind of thing. Um, the idea of kind of including the rules and uh, the you know the actual um, war scrolls and data sheets in with the models and that kind of thing. So they've also started doing. Um, it just means you can buy a box and then play with it straight away no matter what you buy and uh, these starts are just kind of an extension of that logic it's where mm. if you've got 20 pounds and you're looking to road test this hobby you can go and buy a thing that will let you do it yeah and if you like and, and to be honest it feels sort of um sort of realistically scaled against the extent of the participation a lot of people will actually mm. do in terms of actually playing the game actually getting the models finished that kind of thing like yeah, yeah like Three models on one side, six on the other, which I think is the smallest set, mm. is about right for like, real, like you know, I got back into this with 
Silver Tower, you go back into it with the Age of Sigmar core sets, mm. which are both extremely daunting from yeah. the kind of like, I'm back into this, and now I own 50 models. <laughs> yeah. Part models as well. Like, mm. you know, the, the Corn Lord and the, just the, the Corn Reavers, I think they're called, or whatever, the, the Blood Reavers. Blood Reavers. Never that's just it. Reavers. No. Uh, they, they're like, a, they're very fiddly actually, and quite cool models. I'm not a big fan of the Corn aesthetic generally, but they, they're a hard painting job. Lots of tiny, like, edging on the armor and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And tell. they're people as well. Yes. Like, yeah. You know, they're, they're human beings, so that, brings with it a lot of complexity when it comes to getting mm. things to look look right, right. quote unquote. Whereas zombies and big hulky space marines with gribbly armor is mm. no worries. Well you can do amazing things with them, but they're mm. a lot easier, I think, as a sort of like a baseline yeah. entry point. It's good. What are the different uh price points for them? I, can't I think it's twenty five, fifty, and a hundred. Okay. And a hundred gets you the full hundred is the Dark Imperium box, the one yes. that you and I both have now. Like yeah, the, yeah. The mega and that is a lovely it's amazing box it feels like a real sort of treat and also like it's worth noting that you get like the rule book you get in the other versions of the game isn't mm. the the full hardback yeah. tome with all of the lovely lore that book is beautiful and it does an incredible job with the 40k rule book yeah full hardback full of art first sort of half of it is lore stuff about the state of the imperium and then you know the rest of it's just absolutely packed full of scenarios and and they're obviously the rules as well. Yeah, I was surprised by how much there is in it, actually, now yeah. that I've gotten all the way to the end. Like, mm. there's a lot of stuff at the end in terms of, like, op- optional rule sets, so things like dogfighting or mm. fighting in the context of a planetary bombardment or setting up these sort of mega games that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been surprised to see as 20-quid supplements. Yeah. But it, I mean, some of them I literally were. Like, I think Cities of Death literally was a 20-quid right. supplement. Yeah, no, it's in and that. that's in the core rule book, which is... Well, it's in the core rule book you get if you either buy that in separately or, or buy the, the big box, mm. which... But honestly, the more they can do to scale this stuff, the better, I yeah. think. Like, yeah. I don't think if you just, if you're dipping your toes in the water, as a lot of people listening to this presumably are, mm. um, it's necessarily the right option. No. Unless you know you're going to love it. But it's nice that, but it is nice that you can get some of it. And then all of those, um, but as well, all of those starter boxes also act as quite, um, quite good expansions to that big game and vice versa. So, mm. I think if you end up, you know, I can imagine a scenario where if we were getting back into the game this year and we decided to get the 50 quid box and split it, mm. then maybe if that's something that you enjoy, it's worth then getting the big box and splitting that and they all fit together you nicely. Get, you get a big army very quickly as you well. You do, yeah. Actually, if you're doing it that way, they're a great way to supplement. Um, if you just want more Death Guard and more Space Marines, then buying the kind of mid-tier one will just get you more units. Uh, you don't necessarily need the heroes and everything. No, each time uh, works really well. It does also. So the other thing that's happened since those were announced, and speaking of kind of expanding from that initial point, is we're now we now know the shape of basically the next couple of weeks when it comes to the Space Marine releases. Space mm-hmm. Marines are surprising nobody. The first faction to get like a codex and a proper new range yeah. in Eighth Edition. Um, Just the Primaris. Yeah, and it turns out that a lot of the Primaris Marines that are in the book that we mentioned last episode, I think, hmm. are in the game. Who'd up. have thought? So what's new? We've got the Aggressors. Yeah. They're probably the standout new kit, I would say. Mm. They're, are they going to replace Terminators? Are they the new Terminators? I it's think they're say. Devastators. Mm, I, think okay. they're, I think they're better, more equivalent to Royal Devastators. I, I don't think we've seen a Primaris Terminator yet, really. No. Because... There's the Gravis armor that um, the captain wears and that these guys also wear mm. and the Inceptors wear a version of it, I think. It's the bigger armor. Yeah. But it doesn't have, like, if you think of the two things that define Terminators, I would argue it's their invulnerable saves and the fact that they can teleport mm. into battle That's if true. they want to. Mm. They can deep strike. And these Gravis units can't 
do either of those things. Right. The captain has an invulnerable save, but it comes from an, an extra piece of equipment it's he like has. Halo is his, his, his mm-hmm. iron halo. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I see them more like Devastator equivalents. A bit like how the Reavers, who are the other new unit, the sort of skull-faced grapple men, yeah. knifey grapple, stabby friends, um, are kind of like scouts, but like super heavy metal scouts. Yeah, and a lot of people have been split on the Reavers particularly, mm. the way they look. Um, I think like they're a lot better when they're painted in black after seeing like the Raven, is it Raven Guard? Raven Guard, yeah. Raven Guard color scheme. Suddenly they make a lot more sense. Um, bright blue <laughs> with like their skull masks. I think they do look slightly silly. I think they'd look good in like dark green, like dark angels. Reavers would probably look mm. pretty good. Yeah. And to be honest, dark red or red, like there's a lot of colors, other, like blue is not a color that necessarily meshes well with like, like and here's my terrifying skull unit. mask. Yeah. Like I think just in terms of its tone and like mm. the way it looks on the table. Yeah, I'm not sure if they're, how good they are in the game because they've got their, um, shot grenades that stop people from overwatching, which is very useful. Mm. Uh, apart from that, I don't, I don't think they're hugely that good. Um, but we'll see. I'm interested to see what their grapple gun does. Oh, yeah. That, that showed up on the kit, like the, the multi-pose kit. Yeah. And I think them and the, uh, aggressors of the first, like, f- proper, not just snap fit mono pose, as in you can only make the model one way. Mm kits that we've seen so far yeah we're still waiting for a, a like a proper multi-pose kit for the incessors which mm. is intercessors sorry which is interesting yeah they're a bit one note out of the box the uh they're the equivalent of the tactical marines for mm. its normal space marines but the, the strength of tactical marines is they get loads of different loadout options and loads of different gear and they could do lot, perform lots of roles on the battlefield where it feels like the uh uh the intercessors is that what they're called um, intercessors yeah intercessors they like just, intercede and then S's. <laughs> right. Um, they just stand next to a, uh, a captain and get re-rolls on their bolt guns. That's yeah. pretty much it. I love the poses, actually. I do think... They like, look rad, yeah. I think their, their in- understated poses are really nice. Yeah. Like, okay. there's, a lot, there's a tendency of... Um, a lot of games which miniatures just all look great, but they, they look great because they're sort of the poses are so dynamic mm. that they're in the, that everyone is in a kind of a mad leap or a sort of like, and look at my enormous gun kind yeah. of sprawl whereas the intercessors kind of like look i think it was you that said this actually like look like them walking cautious like forward in a sort of tactical way appropriately mm. enough like they look like they're precise and slow and imposing rather than running and jumping and screaming and shouting and waving yeah they have self-control i think it's a, it depends massively on the range when you see the new primaris range together in a in a photograph they look fantastic together i think they're designed mm. to be to have a, a kind of shape overall as an army and to fit fit together so primaris only like cha- uh, chapter army is gonna look pretty good on the shelf which is why i have my eye on yeah you got plans yeah i don't know what yet so i mean i said i think last episode that i was going to wait on the primaris half of the box until the space marine codex has come out yeah and surprise surprise it's the first it thing yeah it's out and it's on pre-orders this weekend i think and so it'll be out just after this podcast comes out i think oh, cool um but that's going to include like they're doing the right things they're borrowing the right things from age of sigmar in that they're mm-hmm. taking chapter keywords and spinning special abilities out of them and we're starting to see the the command point system which is a sort of amount of points you get the last you a game based on the it encourages you to build an army in a sort of it doesn't force you to build an army in a rigid way but if you do adhere to certain guidelines which has ratios of hq to troops and that kind of thing mm-hmm. then you get extra command points and so far all of eighth edition has been played apart from the game we played where we forgot this system exists um like uh it's all been played with like just the very basic uses for those things which things like to interrupt in in the order of attacks in a combat phase or to re-roll a dice and that kind of thing yeah and it sounds like there's going to be shit loads of them and interestingly some of the uses of command points are happen before a battle and essentially allow you to like upgrade a unit so you mm. might uh 
take a battalion that gives you three extra command points, but then invest those three command points immediately in upgrading one of your heroes or something like that, which is a way I think that they're getting in getting other unit types into the game without adding more units technically. Yeah, and and without having too many um what they called their formations in Yeah. Um or battalions in battalions. or sorry, war scroll battalions in um yeah, in AOS. Which is how you get you do like a multi force army in forty K now is that you can have like a an Imperial mm. Guard battalion with a Space Marine battalion they're not called battalions <laughs> i can't remember what they're called detachments yeah that sounds right yeah there's a lot of similar systems that use the different uh, words yeah but they're the same Hooray. like rend and ap yeah, yeah or leadership and more and battle morale. shock leadership battle shock morale phase morale yeah. morale phase leadership value right. battle shock this is, what, this is what we get into basically the same thing we've played both systems recently so we're having yes. uh, uh, difficulties <laughs> i did notice that when we were playing 40k earlier we both gave up on not saying rend yeah it's just rend, isn't it? Rend is a better word than AP. Yeah, I like rend. Yeah, it's you know, I've got like I've got two, I've got two points of Associated Press. Like <laughs> yeah. maybe yeah. being like working in media means mm. that I, AP just means Associated Press for me, like mm. AP Style Guide. Mm. Like yeah, it's yeah. true. rend. <laughs> Gives you a vivid picture of what's happening there. Indeed. Um, so that's um, yeah. So there's a, so there's also the new tank, which I don't think has been announced, but. It's been announced, come, but yeah, there's been more pictures uh, of it. Yeah, um, that seems, seems like there are different ways you could build it. it seems like it's going to be a transport for Primaris. Mm. Um, there's also the Dreadnought, which has interesting ways to build as well. There, there are two Dreadnoughts on the stream last week. There's yeah, yeah. Warhammer live stream in a really good game where they also played with the Ultramarines chapter ability, which is insanely good. <laughs> they Surprising can, everybody. Yeah, they can fall back and shoot, um, which mm. is something that only flying units can do normally. As I did earlier with my fetid, fetid bloat drone. <clears throat> That's correct. Yes, yeah. a fetid, fetid bloat drone. Bloat drone. <laughs> um, it's um, it's funny. Like I feel like there's a risk that armies sort of spike in power or versatility as their codexes arrive. <laughs> yeah, I think um, to an extent. I think you know, whenever you get one of these abilities, you're technically giving up some versatility. Like suddenly you mm. have to be a, a mono force in some way to kind of take advantage of a particular keyword ability mm. as in aos and sometimes i think aos sets precedent for sometimes the best armies in the game being kind of mad multi-faction combos regardless of the specific bonuses for adhering to a keyword mm. sometimes but most of the time those things come out in codexes and say we'll give you an extra ability if you combine these units in this way mm. ultimately outweigh other i think it takes a while for people to discover the counters to, to mm. them and then it's almost like thing isn't overpowered it's just that people haven't figured out how to what they have to take in their army to yeah to stop certain things from happening funnily enough when it comes to like picking um have you settled on a chapter yet incidentally no no i mean i i desperately want to paint some but no idea what color i'm gonna do so like i'm gonna wait for the codex yeah um because i i want it to probably going to be an imperial fist successor chapter given that the story of my army is that they're trapped in this um they're trapped mm. on a forge world and they only kind of get fleeting uh, gaps in the warp storm that happens in their sector. Uh, so they can't get people in or out very easily. So they've got like a ragtag collection of um, uh, mainly Mechanicum uh, because they're, they live on the forge world, but also some assassins because the Imperium thought that the planet had turned traitor at some point and sent assassins to, to dismantle the leadership of uh, the forge mm, world to take control idea. of it. And then they realize that they're still faithful and actually join them and um primaris similar uh, once they you know that message gets out that they're actually not traitors primaris is sent to reinforce so it, there's gonna be like uh 
bits and pieces of different armies, uh, but hopefully unified in a color scheme. And I've no idea what that is going to be at all. <laughs> so I need uh, an Imperial Fist chapter successor would make sense because they're going to be fortressing up, bunkering up in this like yeah, yeah. endless uh, difficult situation. So yeah, see what color schemes there are. Uh, yeah, I'm interested in see what color schemes are. Like, cause I'm thinking of, as I said, I think last month, regular old yellow Imperial Fist. But yeah, they did it good. Um, I want to see if any of the story hooks for any of the new chapters they're going to announce hmm. grab me. Because there are a lot of every kind of Space Marine army out there. And it'd be quite nice, given that this is a fresh start, and given that I'm going to just do Primaris, because I don't want to get too heavy into it. I just would like a little Space Marine Force. Yeah. It would be quite nice to be, like, among probably some of the first people to have a, uh, you know, a force of a chapter that's only just been invented. Mm. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. in a couple of years down the line, when you look back on it, you've got that kind of, like, it's almost like a little curio in your collection. Like, mm. oh, this is a... You know, a full army of rift stalkers. Most, most people haven't seen them before, that kind of thing. Mm. So we'll see. Like, it'll be a mixture of paint scheme I like. I'll look at the rules somewhat. Like, I don't really care. Like, it, the rules for a specific chapter or a specific... Not it, Neatly enough, you get the chapter rules for your successor chapter. If you are a successor chapter, yeah, you get the kind of the root one. Um, but, like, the rules might inform the decision a small amount, but probably not loads mm. compared to backstory and are the colors nice <laughs> very important yeah yeah um so yeah so the space range is is kind of exciting mm. there's um and this is but this has nonetheless been another month of relatively quiet times in age of sigmar yeah oh there's a chaplain and the oh god yeah um so there's a new captain model there's a Librarian. librarian and the chaplain was pictured in a and, and as was the apothecary oh fantastic yeah so that's yeah. that's all of them now yeah we? Unless they get a tech marine. Uh, mm. That's the only thing they're missing. Mm. Um, but, you know, they don't need everything. Like, those are the ones that make sense. I think, I think they'll get everything eventually. Yeah. Yes, because, you know, eventually they will quietly replace. <laughs> yep. Marine by marine. Godspeed, mini marines. Uh, but yeah, relatively quiet for AOS, as you'd expect. And mm. uh, the Shadow of 40k is released. Uh, though uh, they announced that the Path to Glory book is coming. Uh, so that's the new... We mentioned it last time, I think. It's the new... Um, expanding upon the general's handbooks uh kind of narrative campaign structure where you can play a series of games and grow your force from like a general and some dudes to a full fully fledged army over the course of a series of narrative battles yeah it's like it's bigger than skirmish where you mm. all have you have like a leader and some individual models like up to maybe eight models but it's smaller than a battle game because yeah. or at least initially it is mm. uh so that's cool and also the general's handbook is surely imminent and that's what's actually going to reset age of sigma yeah that's uh interesting so one of the reasons path to glory is its own book now is it's not in the next handbook because mm. it's you know the things they've sort of revealed about the next general's handbook is it's almost moving the game in a different direction mm. like not just that the handbook every year replaces the previous one which is kind of what i expected it's more that certain elements get replaced and certain elements just get fleshed out so like siege warfare is in the next edition yeah. of the general's handbook stuff yeah, like really that which is really exciting yeah it's right. um the big thing at the moment is points values because, like, I'm preparing for a tournament in beginning of September that have said that they will, if the General's Handbook 2 comes out by then, they will use the new points values. Mm. And that means I kind of need to be ready for, yeah. like, the value of everything in my army to change. And which I is... think a lot of, fittingly, a lot of things are going to change for each as well in both yeah. directions. Uh, yeah, ch -ch -ch changes. Yeah, he expects sky fires to go up, but most of your other things might come down. Yeah, because I've built an army that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> most of the things I've used are probably going to get cheaper Yes, to reflect their performance. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, 
So that's really, really exciting. Uh, plus they're adding allegiance abilities to a lot of the factions that didn't have them because they came out before the sort of battle tome refresh that Games Workshop did last year mm. when they started adding, adding in these really cool allegiance abilities. So you've got a, a faction that's all from the same army so entirely stormcast force you get access to certain abilities that other armies don't yeah and so yeah because stormcast corn and zinch all now have fleshed out ones and carriage and overlords because those are the factions that have had a new style battle tome since yes. the beginning of this year yes but yeah there's lots of factions like sylvaneth all of the death factions yeah the um, death factions i mean i hope the ghb2 brings back death a bit because they're i think they're not too terribly not in a terrible place at all they're really fun to play with and the fleshy courts is great really great idea for an army and really awesome rules i've played against them a lot mm. um but it feels like they need a little bit of a lift and i want to see some skeletons again you know i love skeletons it's really nice to do it this way like rather than bind all of a, an army's you know things to get excited about and updates and stuff into one book that comes out every five years mm. it's nice that every now and then there's something that affects all the armies and you know what i mean or gives a little bit Just to shakes everybody things up a bit. Yeah. yeah really really healthy yeah i think it is really healthy and it you know and it's it's exactly like how a video game would do it. Mm. Like little buffs to different things, little tweaks and changes and moving things around. And yeah. it's, it's makes, smart. Makes feel new again. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the other thing that's been interesting, like, I think there's an interesting question this month, or I've seen it come up a few times about affordability and GW stuff. Mm. And we've spoken about this a little bit before. Everything we've discussed, like this is an expensive hobby. I'm increasingly aware that it's not for me, like, more expensive really than the video games that i was getting into in terms of like the price of a new game yeah. relative to the value i'm getting out of a miniature i think we both found that for sure but um it was interesting so there's a few new start collecting boxes which if you're not aware of the sort of 50 quid bundle deals for both age of sigma and 40k mm. they're designed as like the seeds of a new army but they are pretty much the they're a good bolt on to anything really they're really extremely good value yeah, well, the nuts one, it, like, it kind of struck me that, like, so the one of the new ones they announced is start collecting fire slayers, which mm. are the naked, uh, on fire dwarf men. Yep. And their start collecting box, um, contains a magma droth, which is like a big salamander dragon thing with model. a dwarf riding it. Yeah. Um, uh, like 10 berserkers, which is a, uh, you know, unit of troops, uh, and two hero models. Mm. Um, for 50 pounds which is a lot of money but it's fucking nuts because the magmadroth by itself is 50 quid yeah like they just knocked the magmadroth price down from 65 to 50 and also you get all the and also releases it at the box yeah so essentially there's no reason to ever buy a magmadroth <laughs> now <laughs> you might as well get the big box of free dwarves just for the spare bit well, i say free in the biggest inverted <laughs> right, but you know, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what it feels like though is um I mean, some people might argue that the Magma Droth was too expensive to start with, but that's a big kit. That's a, you know, if you're going to buy a toy of that size for a child, uh, I mean, it would be the same price. Like, yeah, yeah. Kids like, like, particularly of stuff of this quality. Yes, exactly. The, yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's the finesse of it and everything else. I mean, um, if, yeah, the, the people have been complaining about the pricing of the uh, Primaris Heroes uh, mm. this month mm. more than anything else. And those are individual models that cost 22 and a half pounds each. pounds i think i think it's 22.50 i think it might be, might be 25 yeah might be 20 i don't know i think 22.50 rings a bell um of, of course like it's all relative and people are saying well they're just like a single pose model you can't really do anything with them don't come with many spare bits that you just get your model and it's 20 pounds and people think that's a lot and it is a lot but i think they they know that people will pay it because hero 
uh, models matter so much in your army. Mm. They just are worth more just because they're the focal point. They're the guys who do a lot of the stuff in battles and they yeah. are just worth more. So, I, I mean, I, I paid 20 quid for a hero model this month because on a whim I bought the Changeling, which is one of the things I painted this month. And that is a absolutely brilliant looking model. Mm. Like, I, I love that, how that model yeah, works. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. And do I, is it worth 20 quid? Like, I don't know. In terms of, like, how I... You know, in terms of how much I like it, probably. In terms mm. of its physical size and the amount of plastic involved, dunno. Yeah. In terms of its contribution to my bits box, no. Um, which is something I've become more aware of actually, mm. that particularly like I think that's the reason that the one thing that one of the doesn't necessarily apply to those characters, but something about the cost of a kit. Um, one of the reasons those new start those new starter boxes and those the 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 cheaper sort of uh, Primaris kits they've put out, the monopose ones. Mm. One of the reasons they're cheap is you make the models that are in that box and it will not contribute anything to your pile of bits, really, like unless you're hacking them to pieces. Whereas uh, kits, like the vehicle kits or like some of the bigger demon kits and things like that often kind of shower you in parts. And I think that's something that I don't know if it gets forgotten, but it's definitely something that like I became more aware of this month is that like the value of that stuff isn't just the unit you build out of the specific combination of parts that you use it's all of the parts that you're getting which aren't always enough to make an additional model or something like that but often they're the kinds of things that you're glad you have mm. one project down from this one if that makes sense yeah so for you know, example is if i ever do the big pile of zinch chaos cultists for 40k um I will have to spend absolutely no time sourcing parts to zechify them mm. because I've just got boxes full of little feathers and charms and weird things with eyes on them and stuff <laughs> yeah. as a result of buying other things. Um, it feels like, yeah, it feels like there are benefits like knock off, like sort of knock on benefits to having those big kits mm. that are very modular, but you don't feel those benefits until you're kind of done with that kit and move on to something else later. I think if you're deep into the hobby enough to care about bits boxes then you're True. happily paying 20 pounds for a hero model already <laughs> well already maybe there. grumbly paying <laughs> yeah I, I spent um 20 odd quid on the tech priest dominus mm. uh that's uh, in fairness a really big model quite a big model bigger than it kind of seems but st i don't regret that <laughs> looking forward to building it. it's gonna be the general of my army be no, awesome. yeah I, you know i've spent far stupider 20 quid in my life <laughs> yeah definitely um, me too you know so so nonetheless, there's that, there's that side of things. Yeah, um, the, the, it's a bit futile, the old price debate, even though we've just had it for 10 minutes. Like, because uh, value is different, it's worth, it's different for everyone. It's sort of conscious to, I'm, I'm conscious of it because mm. I don't want to, I don't want to completely lose sight of the value of the things I'm spending my money on necessarily. Yeah. But also it's the thing that I notice come up a lot with people who are new to the hobby. That's true. Right? Like every, That's everyone goes through a process of figuring out how much in, they're willing to spend how much they can you know how much they want to invest and what's that worth to them you know what i mean it feels like yeah. everyone's got to sort of square or get their eye in when mm. it comes to like this is the extent of my desired investment in this thing which is an interesting you know what i mean i think you can't really ignore that, it that is relevant to especially to new people yeah yeah um so to round up news for this month and also to play faint the faintest tiniest bit of lip service to the notion that this isn't entirely a warhammer podcast <laughs> Um, it sort of isn't. Um, so there's a new wave of X-Wing ships out this week as of the time that we're recording. No, last week of mm. the time we're recording. Mm. I'm wrong. Um, which is the 11th wave of ships that the game has had. It's three new ships. 
um, the Scourge Bomber, which was from the Jedi Starfighter video game <laughs> on the GameCube, I think. Wow, going all the way That's back. That's a deep cut. Yeah. Um, it's appeared in a few other things since, uh, which is for scum, but with one pilot can also be a rebel. Uh, there's a, a TIE Aggressor, which is a TIE Fighter variant that's a little bit like a Y-Wing that was only in Star Wars Galaxies. Wow. That's another deep cut. Um, that's for the Empire, obviously, and it's the first Imperial ship that can mount a turret upgrade. Really? Of any kind. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, cause TIE Fighter shoot forwards is one of the founding tenets of that game. Uh, but not anymore. Hmm. Now they can shoot backwards a little bit. And then the other ship is the Auzatuck gunship. This is an even deeper cut, which is a, uh, Wookiee shuttle from, Wookie was, shuttle. which was in, I think, the Clone Wars cartoon mm. and it makes an appearance in Star Wars Rebels and has been a few other things. Is it just a giant hairball? Uh, no, it's sort of, a, it's, it's a nice looking model. It's a very divisive model because mm. it looks a little bit like a kind of like a gunship, like a hind helicopter, but in space, okay, but yeah, with, it's made of wood. What? And it's got like an ornate wooden carvings on it. Oh my goodness. It's, whether or not it feels Star Wars-y to you depends on which specific era of Star Wars you grew up with, I suspect. Mm, okay. Um, the reason, so, um, I don't really have any sort of deep, deep cuts on these and I appreciate that a lot of people don't, well, a lot of people play X-Wing, but obviously, you know, people invest to different levels. Um, it's interesting. So I haven't, this is the first time I haven't had like the entire wave on pre-order or even like both, you know, two of everything on pre-order mm. to kind of like stock up. Um, I will pick up stuff. Um, I don't have any of it yet, but, um, one of the reasons for that is that I've been playing the game a lot less, uh, partly due to life reasons, but also, um, in my opinion, X-Wing at the moment feels like it's in a place where it kind of badly needs an FAQ. Like it badly needs a, a wave of updates. It needs the kind of thing that the general's handbook promises to bring, which is that sort of like game wide shake up that mm-hmm. makes people excited again. Um, and the, the metagame feels very stale and at present, most of those ships don't do a lot to change that because they play into existing trends in the way the game is played, mm. which is basically they, you know, the, the big themes of this wave are sort of bigger alpha strike damage, which is already a thing for the game and even more bombs in more combinations. And as X-Wing, cause X-Wing is like, like Warhammer, a, a big variance game and a lot about trying to control variance. Mm. Unlike Warhammer, it's not a game where you have a million dudes. So, swings can be disastrous or amazing for the few ships that you do have um as a consequence anything in the game that does a reliable amount of damage um or can sort of circumvent someone else's defensive process or something like that uh, is extremely powerful and the game has kind of shifted in that way and as it's shifted in that way the core mechanic of the game which is setting maneuvers and trying to you know doing the kind of the amazing feeling analog flying of ships that that is that is unique to x-wing mm-hmm. and star wars attack wing star trek attack wing but we don't talk about that um has diminished relative to the importance of upgrades is the way i would sort of define it and it feels like the game sort of needs a little bit of a kick to kind of um <clears throat> break down the barrier between the absolute best lists in the game and everything else. Cause that, that, that strata is starting to form, hmm. which, you know, we had a discussion about AOS, I think a couple of episodes ago about how, if you wanted to go win a tournament, there are ways you can do that. Like there are, there were absolutely lists in age of Sigma that felt like they were your easiest ways to go and hmm. crack open the meta. Though, uh, heat three happened. Yeah, you're right. After yeah. that. And it was a really, really good mix of armies there. And, um, a moon clan grots army one with squigs. Um, it was extraordinary. Yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, uh, amazing, amazing scenes. Um, but there was each army's there, but people have figured out as each a bit. So they mm. were, weren't as, you know, 
as dominant as they were previously. So I, I feel like actually iOS is in a really good place. Yeah, I think actually I think now that I say that, I think you're right. Um, I think I think so. I find meta games and how they operate like eternally fascinating. Mm. And I'm very conscious of my own biases when it comes to X-Wing and things I devalue and don't. I do think the game has been in a slump for better, for more than a year now, um, because of one expansion that was bad. Right. Um, and there's, it's hard to get around that. It's sapped the enthusiasm of everybody I know. Okay. Everybody I know. Like, it, is that the job ships? The job master. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone started to go away from the, like, compared to where the scene was, and obviously people drift away and new things come along, Mm. but it it, has felt very different for a long time. It felt like it was an albatross. Um, and I'm still interested in playing X-Wing and I'm going to do store championships at the end of the uh, month and I'm excited about that. But it does feel like it's starting to, as it was for such a long time, such a refreshing change to the sort of complex orthodoxies of old Warhammer. Mm. It feels like not that the games have entirely swapped places because 8th edition 40k is still quite a substantially, uh, uh, you know, there's still probably quite a lot more to remember than there is in X-Wing really like and and i think probably it's less likely to really i think 40k 8th is less likely to immediately grab someone like than a basic game of x-wing which is partly the ip and partly just the immediacy of like i set a dial and i flew a ship Hmm. not i moved six inches that kind of thing yeah the sort of the physicality of it um the i do think as as 40k has sort of radically reinvented itself and vastly simplified itself without losing too much of its what made it feel good um X-Wing has grown and expanded and redefined itself to the point where it is now suffering from bloat. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, it is now an interesting point where it will take something to make that game about X-Wings fighting TIE Fighters again. As opposed to about, like, ships from Jedi Starfighter Mm. fighting wooden Wookiees. How have we got Not that those things are bad right. from a game, pure game point of view. It's just there's, there's something about the aesthetic and the feel and the kind of the things you're thinking about when you're playing that mm. have slowly started to drift. And that's an interesting phenomenon. I think it's absolutely fixable. And I suspect there's a fix in the works. I suspect the reason we haven't seen it is because the game is midway and it's through its competitive season. And so it might be that the FAQ is going to be timed relative mm. to that. Yeah. But, you know, hey, it's a interesting time for that game. Is it a shame to hear? Because um, when I started playing, I, I never played it seriously at all. But um, I enjoy the game. I love the rule set. It's amazing. Uh, but uh, when we first started playing, you could run Tie Swarm and you'd fight some X-Wings. And it was the most exciting thing ever because that's mm. what happens in all the films. You, you can still absolutely do that. Right. And, you know, Tie Swarms are still mostly viable. Uh, you know, they're very high skill ceiling and stuff. Mm. And that's um, that's a separate that's question. Cool, it, you know, th- it's a separate question, basically. Because if, you, yeah. if you're playing nine games in a day on a long Swiss and you've brought something that's hard, mm. you will probably ultimately lose out on make average most- to the person who's brought something that's easy. Yeah. Like, that's just, just the way. You're going to make most, more mistakes, aren't you? Yeah. It's going to happen. And the rewards for the higher skill ceiling stuff don't quite match up because the ce- the, the floor has risen, essentially. Right. That's the, yeah. that, from a meta point of view. Mm. But anyway, that's, that's sort of the X-Wing update. I imagine I'll have a little bit more to say about it when i've done some more events like well the other reason i've been quiet on it is not a lack of enthusiasm for the game it's just that i took a break after the european championship sure so mm. as you do cool but yeah so we should talk about our month in painting and, and playing with dudes because it doesn't feel like it's been a very it's been a very uh it's been a short month because of when we're recording this it's not been a big month for either our hobby in terms of like narrative or like understanding of those settings but it feels like we both dug in a little bit deeper into that stuff yeah, I mean, I think, I'm trying to remember what we've picked up since last time. I got a Dark Imperium box, so that's happy. Yeah, you finally got yours. I got mine, I built all my Death Guard, I've started playing with them, mm-hmm. um, until I decide what to, what colour my 
Primaris Space Marine is going to be. Um, probably the most successful project was the Vanguard Hunters, which mm. I've finished five of and got them up to like a standard really happy with. But I think I've talked about that last time. Um, so yeah, I think you mentioned the process, but you finished them now. I finished the pictures, them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what else have I done? Uh, painted some Nurgles, painted some, uh, mm. uh some Plague Marines, uh, in a purple color scheme. That was quite a gamble, uh, but I think we'll pay off when they're all the same colour and they're all mm. together. Uh, it's quite hard to make those models look bad with a, a zany colour scheme, but I'm giving it a shot. <laughs> it's interesting because we're actually using the same colour mm. set for our Nurgle. Like we've, we've both gone for sort of like a sandy cream, mm. purple and green. Yeah. But in completely different combinations with completely different results. Yeah, the, the basic armour is uh, that I've done is like a dark purple, but quite a rich purple. Cadbury purple, I called it on the, on the Twitter. Um, and the spot color is this, um, lurid glowing green color. So all, mm. the, all the eyes will glow green and trying, like doing some very basic attempts at, um, source lighting, yeah. painting, um, which I'm hoping to practice. And the Nurgle, uh, range is a good place to practice that because they've got like little lights and stuff all over them. Mm. Um, the tentacles of like Rakarth flesh washed with, uh, like a mix of seraphim sepia and, uh, Bealtan green, which are just two washes that you can mix together to get a kind of gross, putrid thing. And the more you wash Rakarth with that stuff, the more kind of green and horrible it, and, like rotten it looks. Yeah. Um, and all the trim is bronze, and there's so much trim on those things. It's yeah. Absolutely nightmare. Welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah. So I'm welcome to chaos. Chaos is all about that. that Everything's got a little trim. bit of trim. Yeah. So that's uh, that's been most of my month, just painstakingly doing trim. Uh, but it'll be worth it in the end. I'm, I'm going to paint up my Nurgle Lord next, the Lord of Contagion, who, which is an amazing model. This whole king yeah, he's beast great. with a, a huge axe um, that plays in the game exactly how he looks as well. Slow and deadly. Yep. Um, Silent but deadly. Indeed. The Nurgle champion. Uh, and we'll talk about the games we played later, but obviously we've played some 40k and we played some AOS. We've done yeah. more games this uh, this episode. That we've Definitely done. both of us have, I think. Yeah, like, yeah. which is great. Well, because you and I played three, which is Yeah, I've really enjoyed I've learned I learned so much about the game. It's a, such a strange game. <laughs> we'll get into this. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it's such a strange game. But I Yeah, do I guess that's going to be a big part of it. Cause, like, I, I definitely feel like this has been a big month of, well, just the last couple of days have been a, a big, like, okay, this is AOS. Like, yeah. I'm starting to get this now. Yeah, you start to understand how it all really works. How about you, Chris? What's your hobby been? So I've done that. I don't I really wanted to be productive. That was the thing. So like when we last spoke, I'd just finished all a thousand suns. Mm. And I think that weirdly the, maybe the measure of whether or not you're going to stick with this hobby is after finishing one long and time scrolling project, do you then go like, thank God, another one, mm. like just, and just the difference is enough. Or do you take a break from painting entirely? Um, so I jumped into AOS Zinch, which I've left fallow for a long time. That's mm. one of the reasons that our AOS playing, um, we started doing other things because, um, like I hadn't added anything new to my army or, or anything like that. So I dug into the kits that were there. And so the first thing I painted this month was the burning chariot kit, um, which is a, a journey that thing. <laughs> like, so I feel like there's, you know, I've had the, I've made the point about, uh, sub assemblies before. Mm. And, uh, you know, and last month I was saying how I, I'd given myself the treat with my Nurgle of, or even just teaching myself that it's okay not to do sub-assembly sometimes. Not everything needs them. Yeah. Holy shit, that thing needs them. Mm. Because, um, you know, you've got a disc uh, sitting on top of a gout of flame that's made of three separate parts, which is being pulled by two screamers, which are essentially just screamer models that are sort of welded into this flame model. 
but it's still like painting two full screamers. Like they're, they're, that's a unit basically. Mm. And there's the disc, and then there's the exalted flamer, who's a massive flamer, and then there's three green horrors. So what I thought was, I'd not painted like a big kit before. This is really the first like vehicle profile thing that I've done, and I realized, oh, this is painting a unit. This is not painting a big model. Mm. But I guess I think some vehicles would be if there was only one thing and they weren't, you know, both horizontally complicated and vertically complicated. So I basically just had to build that model right. from the ground up. Something I've started doing this month more and more that I found very helpful is I basically fully base the models now and then paint them. Mm. Like, because partly with the chariot, it was necessary because I wanted to spray things different colors to kind of make things easier. So... Uh, and, it, and because the chariot, the, the, you'll see pictures, the shape of it, um, there's so many flying things like above, like if something is hovering, that's the worst. Like if it's sat on the base, you don't need to paint the thing it's sat on. Um, if it's tall and thin and standing on one leg, it's fine because you have always going to have access to everything around it. Mm. If something is hovering broadly and flatly, like a pair of manta rays pulling a flaming disc might <laughs> across a, the base, then the human eye, you can see all of the base. You just can't fucking paint it mm. if you once you've assembled it. Like, so I basically fully built it, painted it, did the rocks, the t- the tufts, everything. Then I did the flames and the screamers. Then I built the disc and painted that. And then I built the exalted flamer and painted that. And then I built the blue horrors. And then it was done. It took about a week. <laughs> it is huge though, and it is amazing. Yeah, I magnetized it as well, which is something that mm. um, partly for transport, so that the disc, but also so that the top level turns. Because then the, the flamer, who's also gouting a huge amount of flame, can mm. sort of turn to uh, set stuff on fire. Yeah, it's it's, it's a freakish kit, which is, is brilliant. I think um, I think you've done an amazing job with the flamer, especially making it look like a monster. Where yeah. they kind of can look like wibbly bin bags. I've thought of them as demon bin bags, right? For, <laughs> like for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a few things that I've. Um, it definitely feels like it's benefited from me going away and getting better at painting before returning to Zinch stuff. Right. I might do some touch-ups on my other flamers. Um, but there are also things that I, I did that also use stuff that I learned from the Harlequins and, and other stuff. Like everything I've done has helped. Mm. Like, um, in terms of like hot, hot painting tips, round one for this month, um, I found myself, I now more freely, I've gotten better, a better sense of how to achieve an effect and that's just practice. But I've become, um, I now use often opposite techniques to do the same thing depending on context. So blends are an example, right? Like you're talking about, you know, having a smooth transition or a gradient or something like that. And I have loads of gradients on my stuff because I like painting them and they're very zinchy. Like colors fading into each other is a really good visual shorthand for like warping and changing and all the things those models are ostensibly doing, but you can't see because they're static. Yeah. Um, and so, the, and I paint a lot of green fire and I was invested in finding a way to make it look less like cabbage. I've not entirely succeeded, <laughs> but, um, interestingly or not that fire, like everything else is a product of not just washing. So washing, making glazes with Lamian medium and dry brushing. Hmm. And specifically, I think the thing I've learned or, or started to use more confidently this month has been using dry brushing to... Uh, quickly achieve an effect that you then sort of enhance with washes and glazes. So dry brushing is actually an amazing way to achieve a transition between two colors on a flat surface mm. because, you know, short of an airbrush, it's a similar effect. You, you apply a sort of a small and controlled amount of paint. And if you don't do it right, it can look streaky. You have to be very careful. If you apply too much, you just created a blob. Um, 
but like for example the the flamer has a transition from deep blue to purple to black uh which is i think where that monstrous kind of thing comes from like its face and arms go black rather than just into a kind of bright color like yeah. the others do which is i wanted to make it look like it was more important flamer because it is it's an exalted flamer mm. and that is kind of how i ended up doing it um and that is done it's almost entirely with dry brushing but then the highlights that are on it that also go through the same transition are done with glazes over highlights so like mixing those things seems to create like relatively quickly quite a good balance of effect yeah makes sense. glazing over with an intermediary color is actually a really good way of achieving a sort of quick blend yeah type look that's actually it. and um that's where lamy medium is great because you can mix your color yeah Lamian it down and uh, get that mid-tone every time. Yeah, I've started using dry brushing to do the lighter parts of fire. Cause fire, is, fire is fucking weird. Like, actually, fire is a perfect example of, of inverting effects because um, fire is brighter at its core and darker outside, mm. which is the opposite of how you would light almost anything else. It's the opposite of an object, obviously, which gets darker in its recesses and lighter outside yeah so with an object that you know you do the traditional you paint you base coat it you wash it and maybe you dry brush a highlight if you're doing it quickly um i found that with fire now i like paint it wash it a light color with lamy and medium and then dry brush a darker right color to get into the high areas and it's just feeling confident that that'll work has been mm. a big thing and it's, it's made that stuff faster but also i think it definitely makes it look better as well yeah fire is difficult because um <laughs> it's very strange substance physically because uh it's light source, light source is directional depending on where you're looking at it so it's the lightsaber problem it's where if you paint a lightsaber you can't paint it as white in the middle no with glow around the edges because then you turn the model slightly and the effect is ruined the fire is the same mm. um so i had this problem when i was doing um the um uh, what's his name? The the God King's greatest warrior in ancient. The Celestant Prime. The Celestant Prime. He's got a scepter that can call down he's meters. Got, he, and he's standing on a swirling vortex of magical energy that in no way resembles a model of the solar system. Absolutely not. No auris here. Uh, so that's an interesting one because, like, if you look at it from, you paint it as though the ball is the source of the flame, so it's the brightest point. Um, but it's kind of the fire comes off it in a one dimensional sorry a 2d sort of way mm. so it's a ball with a two-dimensional trail of fire coming off it i was like how do you paint it from a directly ahead angle to maintain the brightness of the ball in, at all i hit that with angles. my chaos sorcerer lord who's holding a very similar orb yeah. of balls glowing balls, balls on fire yeah. yeah a great ball of fire you might say <laughs> there are a lot of balls on fire in um mm. in in warhammer uh, so that's that's a weird problem and that's how why they often end up looking unnatural uh or sort of fudged or cartoonish it's because he you physically can't achieve the effect that it it demands. I think sometimes less is more with that stuff as well. Yeah, like a little, like a very thin glaze over white often gets you the most of the effect. Yeah, yeah for sure. It just looks like a hot thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's going to be interesting too. There's loads of kind of smoke, which I've no idea how to paint smoke at all. Uh, yeah, like again, often less is more. The more you do, the more mm. it looks like you've painted a cabbage. This is the thing I've learned. <laughs> right? Cabbage. Like, yeah. The more the more paint you put on something, the more solid it looks. That's that's a legit thing. Like mm. jokes aside, that's a, that's a thing, right? If you if you paint your smoke or your fire or something like white or very very light gray and then you start applying washes to it it there's such a as with all models there's like a this isn't good enough this isn't good enough this is done and i fucked it like mm -hmm. the, the journey yeah th that goes on i think with the, the first set of flamers i did i did go too far mm. like i was like maybe if i add yellow that'll help and it's like nope you just that's like, leaves now every yeah. road is cabbage after that point. like <laughs> everything you do add a bit of purple guess what sometimes cabbage is purple add a bit of blue sometimes cabbage is blue yeah. like i've learned 
actually that you know some bits of cabbage look a bit red like you can't i've not i found there isn't a color left to me yeah it doesn't make things something like more like cabbage so the way to do it is to do less mm. which is you know yeah it's a solution yeah if, if you have my specific problem with it <laughs> cabbage, yeah. um i'm interested in getting into object source lighting mm. uh what is that what it's called one source, yes one osl osl source light. Uh, which is just glow effects, basically. But yeah. actually expanding the glow effect onto surrounding areas and bits of armor and stuff that would reflect it and kind of thinking about the light, where the light would fall. It's kind of an interesting, fun challenge, um, especially if you're using it on a model you don't mind ruining. Yeah, I've, I've started to do it a little bit. Mm. Like the um, the flamer has it around its mouth. Mm. Cool. Partly as a way of getting out of painting teeth. <laughs> um, but yeah, like and that, that was dead simple. That mm. was, I took the lightest flame dry brush and just let it spill mm. slightly. And that was done, basically. Yeah. Um, you see some like amazing, like often airbrushed, like OSL examples where like the light, it's like a character standing in a dark room mm. holding often a bright flaming ball. <laughs> right. that, like it's just, you know what I mean? And it's perfectly yeah, yeah. judged so that the light is only hitting them. I think that's an amazing technique for, uh, for like a display model or like a competition entry. But I think from a tabletop model, often you want it to be a bit subtler mm. because again, the viewing angles are going to vary so much. And it's another one of those things where, you know, if you're going to do that right from behind, the model is going to be like totally dark. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I see like a lot of kind of OSL attempts where people just sort of spray a, an area, like a bit of a plasma gun and the gradient around it kind of becomes the glow, but that isn't what light does. So like when you see people who are really good at OSL, they actually think about where the light isn't going to touch and actually right next to the uh, the right next to the light source on a gun if it's the sort of the surface is rotating sorry curving away from the light like it's not actually going to get much of the light like the, yeah, yeah. the bits that are actually going to pick up the light are, are like the shoulder pads nearby and like bits of the mask and stuff that's reflected further away it's, it's all that kind of interest it's a really interesting artistic challenge to try and do it yeah i find that you can fudge it a little bit on mm. like it again it depends i think it's a very sophisticated effect that isn't worth going into too much detail for on like a line unit something like that <laughs> for sure yeah. like you know what i mean like mm. it's like if you're really going to do it then you have to it, it's a surprising investment of yeah energy I, and i don't uh i don't like it when it becomes the point of the whole model like yeah it's like, uh, the whole model is an exercise in object you know osl mm. then it should be about what the the fantasy of the model is representing shouldn't it and osl should be a technique that you use to kind of reinforce th this cabbage is glowing <laughs> yeah indeed yeah the the impact of a glowing cabbage on its surroundings yeah, exactly essentially is, is very important so yeah so the other the other model i painted totally on a whim uh and because you came around and we were talking about various chaos models and stuff mm. um and then you pointed in i think the index chaos book i suspect um i think we were recording regular crane crowbar you pointed at the model of the changeling and said you're gonna get one of them and i was like no i don't think so i don't think space for my army and then i kept looking at it and I, then i read its rules again and then i was like actually yeah so i did a bad thing and added given my backlog of siege already mm. i just went to the shop and i bought the guy <laughs> and then i immediately painted the guy which is a very satisfying thing to have done yeah like i don't i didn't add to my backlog technically mm. i just didn't help my backlog the backlog stayed the same yeah but you got a new cool model letter yeah um and i'm really like and so that was and then put him together really quickly like i had an idea so there are elements of his base where i do uh I've, I've he's he's sort of a, a willowy demon mage faceless demon mage with four arms uh surfing a column of swirling magic that has faces in it mm. because of each standard obviously. yeah you see every day's each yeah object and um 
but there's an effect that I'm going to be using a little again on another model, which is probably obvious if you know what I'm working on, um, that I wanted to practice. Um, so I've, his uh, column of magic is emerging from a portal uh, on the base, hmm. um, which was something that I've been thinking about doing for a really long time. And I decided like, and it's a point I bought the plastic card like in March. And then I was like, fuck it, just do it, you idiot. Let's actually do this. And if it looks bad, try it again. If it doesn't look bad, you know, you can mm. always just use a different base if you, it doesn't work. Um, but I'm really pleased how it's come out. And I think it's really set the model off. In fact, mm. I think that's one of the, like, given how quickly I painted that model in like three days, it's, it's like one of the first ones that I've gone like, oh shit, like there's a few really simple things I've done with it that make it look a lot better than it is probably. Mm. Like it's a lot higher contrast with like sharper gradients. And it turns out, cause I was actually following the heavy metal paint scheme off the front of the box, which I don't normally do. Yeah. I made some changes, but. The changes I made were predominantly like green cabbage related. Changed mm. the color of his skin as well. But like, that was just like, I'm going to try and, you know, I'm looking at the gradient they've done. I'm going to try that. And it f- turns out that the really high contrast, like, uh, high contrast light and shadow, but with like quite sort of vibrant, um, blending and uh, on things like fabrics, like wavy fabrics. Looks good to your eye, but cameras fucking love it. They just can't, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it just sort of catches it something about, yeah, yeah. yeah. They do paint for cameras incredibly well, don't they? Yeah. And so that's been an interesting thing to learn. Cause mm. it made me realize, oh, maybe that's, you know, you mentioned it before and I've shared the same thing. It'd be lovely to get like a model into white dwarf or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe that's one of the things that really helps is like painting for the camera a mm. little bit. So that'd be my other, my other thing. Yeah. The changing does look as though he's in the middle of a photo shoot and, you know, the director's kind of working in and yeah. he's just kind of different poses. It's a great example of a model that I think is in a hero moment. We'll talk about this in a moment. Yeah. The games we played, like that's a model that has one spectacular hero moment when it plays Mm. and it feels like it's in the middle of that moment. Like it's sort of swirling out of this portal. Well, you know, particularly given the base I've done, um, like, you know, sort of pulling a fireball out of thin air with three of its hands. Like it's a good, like it's a great, it's a great, another great example of a pose that's not like explicitly like a power pose. Mm it doesn't have legs so it can't do like the wide stance look at my weapons kind of thing yeah but it's yeah it's really you know talking about 20 quid monopause models that's one that's like yeah i, I wouldn't I do anything else with this yeah, like yeah. if i did this it would be rubbish <laughs> like, it does look amazing it's a, it's a fantastic model and it's ace in the game as well yeah yeah really really interesting rules um yeah and so yeah and then i made a little portal on his base with plastic card and green stuff basically the so reason- that was a kind of dry run for your um uh yeah another man who's coming yeah, yeah another big point man, which is right point yeah well, um, so yeah. And then the other thing I did was I painted a four foot by four foot terrain board, mm. um, which is the one I bought at the games expo that I mentioned last yeah, week. That is a fantastic game board. It's been really, really good. good. If you look at the show notes for this episode, you'll see pictures of the games we've played on it. Mm. It's made such a difference having a board. Mm. And amazingly, like I thought when I bought like a 20, like when I bought a 24 tile, six foot by four foot board that I was giving myself a project I might never finish. I committed myself to trying to do uh, four feet by four feet, which is about enough for a thousand point game in time for this episode. And it turns out it's really easy. You buy a massive brush, you base coat it, and then you just do lots of big swirly dry brushes Mm. to reflect sort of terrain colors and, you know, like sort of like the shifting the way the wind would blow sand and the sort of thing that makes something look natural, basically to look at pictures of sand essentially. Mm. And then, um, fill in all the rocks and the little details and you've got a huge game board and I was really I was pleasantly surprised by how quick it was I mean you, you've mentioned before like painting terrain is a way of taking a break it's a holiday isn't it yeah the hard this stuff. is totally that yeah like just like it felt like a decorator just like smacking a dry brush up and down these huge well 
huge relatively mm. one foot by one foot panels and suddenly like you know made some mistakes glossed over some things you don't really notice and when it's on the board it looks great so mm. yeah it looks absolutely fantastic and it's really well designed the way the panels fit together are really secure and they fit really tightly and actually we've got um the four by four board overhangs on two sides of the table but it's completely stable completely fine and all your models sit on it and it doesn't move around yeah it's yeah. just it's just brilliantly designed and looks great um really couldn't recommend it enough. so if you're interested that's a tablescapes board by secret weapon miniatures mm. um games workshop do do realm of battle boards which are um two foot by two foot panels um like i'm glad i went in this direction partly because the board i've got is a lot more neutral whereas the gw boards tend to be quite specific to one of the settings yeah um but also like the fact that it's so modular means that like i feel like it's easier to swap things in and out and it feels like this i've done it in sort of like a gray blue wasteland essentially but that can form the basis of pretty much anything we're going to want to do like mm. specifically it was designed to look like the realm of metal for my uh age of sigmar army but it could easily be a, a the you know the the waste a wasteland industrial wasteland outside an imperial city or a surface of a moon or mm. the planet of the sorcerers or you know what i mean like it'll adapt yeah, really sure. nicely whereas yeah. realm of battle board uh if i got the aos one with the big cogs on it perfect for realm of metal but it's never going to look right for 40k mm um similarly if i got the 40k industry you know uh imperial city one then it's never going to look right for that so yeah, yeah really specific. and the old drama battle board has these big hills on that apparently not met nightmare to play on right because the models slide off them all the time yeah there's some issues with that but that's because pink horror is a like a nonsense barrel of monkeys <laughs> yeah when it comes to they're always gonna do that um and yeah something that's been really uh, uh cool about that is because it's one foot by one foot panels you can see the joints between them you kind of eye kind of elides them after a while mm. but actually turns out they're having a sort of essentially what is a uh one foot by one foot grid drawn on the board so you have no you always have like a re easy reference to 12 inches it's actually really nice when it comes to like gauging distances and, and sort of getting rid of some of the um the busy work of both 40k and age of sigmar of just sort of figuring out like what does 12 inches from the edge of the board look like practically like do we have to draw a line temporarily whilst yeah. it determined deployment zones no it's just that row of panels mm. yeah it's nice. really nice yeah sweet so really, really great we should talk about um before we get onto our uh battle report for this month we've played quite a few more games mm. so should we um I mean, I know you've played some... Do you want to start with the 40k that you've played before we played 40k together? Because that yeah. might be an interesting experience. Yeah, so it's my first game of 40k, which I played against my friend Chimp, and he brought his Dark Eldar, who are now called the Drukari. 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 And uh, it was a kind of... It was a force of skimmers and flying units and a, and a straight-up plane that just flew around the board. <laughs> um, what like, size of the board were you on? It was quite small. So it was um, four by... No, it was... I can't remember. Uh, three by three, something like that. Right. Bit smaller than it needs, it should be really. Um, the, uh, the ship, um, the plane has a minimum move distance. And if it goes off the board, it's dead <laughs> to all intents and purposes. And like, uh, Chip could barely keep it in the board. Uh, so it just, it had to run one route round and round and round or else it was dead because it was just <laughs> flown off the board and exploded. Like the bus from speed. <laughs> uh, but uh, that was interesting. I, I put down my Death Guard, which is just what you get in the Dark Imperium box, which is 20 Poxwalkers, uh, Noxious Lord of Nurgle, whatever his name is, the general with the big axe. Putrid. No, that's not. That's um, a different guy. There's a guy with an enormous bell 
whose name I've also forgotten. I think that's the Putrid Blightbringer. Putrid. I think you got Light the, 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 the Putrid Blightbringer. It's really hard to say. Uh, the noxious smoke, smoke face grot snotter. The the, the um the wizard who's got a blowing noxious cloud out of his palm. Quite cool. Um, so yeah, they're your three heroes. Then you've also got seven plague marines and a blighted bloat, fetid, fetid bloat drone. drone. Yes, which is a hideous flying uh, drone which trails uh, pipes along the floor. And the idea of it is that it sucks all the horrible juice out of the ground, and then it goes into this big nurgly belly that is kind of this fleshy sack that hangs under it. And then it turns it into this horrendous poison that it then sprays out of these two nozzles uh, on everything. And uh, it's the most powerful thing in the game, though, as far as I can tell, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in my experience. Um, so that's the army. Uh, it, n- the Death Guard force that comes out the box is very, very slow, and there's not a huge amount you can do with it tactically, I don't think, um, because... They just walk very slowly towards the enemy and then sort of hope for the best. Mm. Um, the bloat drone is really fun to use because it's kind of like a hunter-killer thing. It's only got a range of nine inches, so you have to really think about hiding it and kind of whipping it out to kill something and then going back into hiding again. Mm. Um, it's also very good because if it gets charged as a flying unit, it can retreat and shoot, um, which is a great way of getting away from Terminators, say. Um, so it was... <laughs> it just happens as, I think, all Death Guard games are going to happen if you play with just the box set uh i put all my heroes in bubble wraps so uh, put the pox walkers into one big 20 zombie unit and just wrap them around the heroes because in 40k uh, you have to shoot the nearest unit if you're target you can't target characters that yeah. are uh, unless they're the closest thing so um against knowing that i could be attached from all angles uh given that he's running skimmers i just put this big very very uh resilient bubble wrap around those characters and march them all forwards uh the the dupe the bell bonged it that made them go a bit faster you love your silly musical instruments yeah i'm all about that yeah it's been heralded for life very slowly forming a band yeah and they so they just sort of bong their way forwards and then don't quite ever die because they've got this um disgustingly resilient save which is Mm. five plus saves against pretty much everything except mortal wounds um they they have lots of invulnerable saves especially the heroes um they've got you know lots of wounds they're just very 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 resilient and hard to get rid of uh and that's what chimp found really and he struggled because uh drew Corey combat units aren't that great well at least the ones he he had weren't so that they would disembark from a skimmer and then the blood drone would just instantly kill them <laughs> it would just come out from behind a wall vomit on them they'd melt and then that would be the, the end of that and he eventually got another unit into combat with them eventually shot off the uh the pox walkers which basically just give you shooting cover for the entire game as mm. far as i could tell because when i use them again against you chris like that's how i use them because it yeah. just stops your guys from taking any damage and then if you're in close your your lord of contagion is going to do serious damage um i can't remember i think i lost the game on objectives because we were playing maelstrom mode and this is where you like draw cards and they give you objectives for the turn that you go and complete for points mm. um, and they can be things like uh Lightning Breaker, where you need a unit in the enemy's backfield by the end of the game, the enemy's deployment zone. They could be like Killer Hero, or uh, and there were six capture points on the board, and you draw something like Own Capture Point One, and then you get a point. Um, and what happened was it was so kind of arbitrary what you were doing in any, at any given moment that it felt more like we were playing two different single player games. Um, and like mm-hmm. in my turn, I draw and just kind of cash in as much as I could. And, uh, in Jim's turn, he would do the same. And then in the end, like one of, uh, he came out 
in front because I had to kill a warlord and just wasn't in a position to do it. Um, and so it felt like there wasn't a story to the game because it was so mad and there was no kind of, didn't feel competitive because I wasn't actually thinking about his army too much beyond just like, what can I kill to get that capture point at any given moment? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, I think next time we'll, um, we'll do, uh, as one of the more structured kind of match play setups and, uh, make them fight that way. Mm. Well, that's a good segue to the open war cards. Mm. So this is something else that's come out very recently. We, we just played our first game of 40k. Um, which aren't going to be a full battle report, partly because we didn't take any pictures, but... <laughs> None of us painted things. Um, well, yours painted. So, yeah, so we had, you know, we thought maybe we'd do, like, Zinch Demons versus the Death Guard. Mm. But then I realized, hang on, I've just finished painting loads of Space Marines that are yeah. from the wrong era. So we sort of, having, we decided to have a game which is a little bit like one of those sort of, like, a mad thing happened in the warp one day. <laughs> so we had a, um, we had some 30k era Thousand Sons two units of tactical marines and armament and some terminators encounter a kind of eerie death guard force maybe in the warp maybe sometime after the thousand sons were ripped from prospero and kind of thrust into the eye of chaos mm. they hit a death guard a heavily corrupted future vision of the death guard coming the other way through the warp yeah. right like different separated by ten thousand years but and those two gods never miss a chance to beat each other up in, indeed so um so and to play the game structure we play this on the new terrain board and also the fact that it was set in the warp made it make sense that we used aos terrain <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, it kind of works blood nados like, everywhere but yeah. yeah um and so to structure this we use the uh something they brought out this week or last week uh which is called the open war cards um which is a deck of cards cost a tenner and i'm really taken with it mm. i would happily play all my games this way i think short of any other kind of really interesting scenarios i'd love them to do this for aos yeah definitely so the way it works is um it's a deck of cards but you split it into five individual decks and um one deck is called objectives one deck is deployment one deck is twists and then you have ruses and sudden death and this is designed to allow you to play a game with literally whatever models you happen to be holding when you decide to play a game. And we've always been a little bit wary. Like AOS encourages you to do this. Like open play, play what you want, ignore summoning values, just do do stuff. And we've always gone like, no, 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 we'll balance this, mm. right? And I think the cool thing about this was almost like as a test of A, the power level system and B, that philosophy of like just go with it and trust us a bit right mm. don't faff over being exactly a thousand points for a moment just play um but the way it works i think is really clever so you shuffle all the five different decks and then we draw an objective card um which for the game we played was then kingslayer which meant that at the end of the fifth battle round you would add up the value of every single unit that you or the, you add up the power levels of every unit you'd succeeded in killing and the player with more wins. However, as a twist on that sort of format, which is obviously a very simple format, if the enemy general is dead, you double your score. So the gen killing the general, you don't only get their value, but you get like a two times multiplier on everything else. Yeah. So uh, interesting way of doing the kill the general kind of archetype as well. Yeah. Um, and that, that those scores are calculated even if your entire force is dead, you can still win mm. if you killed more, uh, which is a way of balancing imbalance points values to the extent then you draw a deployment card which indicates how the deployment values would be set up and we actually got like the most generic one like two lines yes but there are some in there that are mad like 
one team in a circle in the middle, the others are the corners, like that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and then you draw a, uh, a twist, which is something else that applies to the game. So that could be like a storm in the warp. Um, we got, uh, like a night encounter. So it meant we were fighting at night, which meant that all ranged, uh, all shooting and spells were restricted to 12 inches initially. And then at the start of each new round. So after both of us had gone, we'd roll a dice and on a four up, the range, the distance we could see had a chance to increase, basically, is a simple way of doing it. Mm. Which immediately, like, gave me a tactical headache as the shooty army. Yep. And I was like, okay, well, I have to account for the fact that Tom can hypothetically get closer to me, a lot closer, a lot, you know, a lot safer than I'd like. Mm. And those are your, like, that's your game. And there's loads of different combinations of those. And that, I love that as an idea. Like, yeah. I love, I love the fact that, like, we could play Kingslayer again, but with a different twist and a different deployment pattern. It could yeah, be a totally, totally different game. game. Totally different game. Yeah. Um, and then you deploy, you do all the stuff you're going to do, and then you add up the power levels of everything in your army. And if one player has more, so you had slightly more, you had 44 power level to my 39. So not vastly so, but you have more. Then the player who has less draws a ruse card, which is then just like, which you then play immediately, pretty much. I think in all of them, you then play it straight away. Yeah. Which is like a buff you're going to get. So one example would be like, your, your men are feeling like, they're determined about this battle. You're not going to have to take any leadership checks, which might change the way you use your hordes and stuff like that. Yeah. And I got a really interesting one, which was uh, ambush, where I got to choose up to three of my units, take them off the board, even though they're already deployed, and then redeploy them anywhere more than 12 inches from your units. And so I didn't really want to do this because uh, my plan for the game to an extent was that I was going to... Um, hang back and just try and survive for enough turns that the range would get up like hope the sun comes up yeah. so i can shoot you and make you know i don't want to be engaging at 12 inches mm. but as it happened i had deployed my terminators in the teleportarium so they could deep strike but actually the ambush was like a better version of deep strike because i didn't have to kind of they're there at the start of the game so yeah. you could move and shoot and charge and, and shoot and charge and mm. do that so you'd hidden your bloat drone behind a little wall and i decided to place them immediately in the game <laughs> it was like an early deep strike yeah um, so that they could ambush the bloat drone. Um, and then the extra system the open wall, wall cards have is that if one player has double the power level of the other, then the underdog also gets a sudden death card, which is a hidden victory condition known only to them that allows them to instantly win the game if they fulfill it. Mm. And they're, they're, they're pretty cleverly designed. I think to use it in a way that would be fun, both players would need to know what they potentially were. Yeah. But I like the idea of the player who has so much more stuff to play with has to spend the game trying to guess what the other player is going to do from yeah. a, is trying to achieve from a finite set of variables i think that's really clever we haven't played with that but i think it's a really nice yeah it's system. really cool really nice idea um obviously we can't do necessarily a blow by blow for that game except the final score <laughs> people might be curious to find out uh was uh 78 points to tom six points to me <laughs> yeah it was the, some of the worst dice rolling I've ever seen. <laughs> so it, was, it was astonishing. Uh, I mean, the Terminators alone just failed to do anything at all for turn after turn after turn. Well, not turn after turn. Turn after turn, then they all died. Then they died, yeah. They got vomited on and melted. So yeah, the Terminators are a power level 14 unit, and I thought maybe it would be my best chance taking down the Bloat Drone. Mm. I think they are. They have a decent AP on their weapons and, yeah. and stuff. Um, so I teleported them in, I charged... I did, and the boat drone is a parallel 10 unit. I did one wound to it. Yes. And then all of the Terminators died. Yeah. Um, the drone can retreat and shoot because it's a flying unit. So it also overwatches. So, uh, overwatch means you get to 
shoots the enemy um, as they come in. But the bloke drone auto hits. Normally Overwatch works, so you roll the hits and on sixes they go through. Whereas the bloke drone just six up on them as they come in. And uh, it's like strength seven AP one. Yeah. And that strength is good enough against Terminators. If you yeah, get enough just, of the hits go through. Yeah, you just get, through, get enough yeah. weight of dice and they're dead in two times. Yeah, I thought I might lose a few of them or something, but I was expecting mm. to kill it. Yeah let alone do one wound to it and then lose the entire unit. So yeah. that was that was a downside. And so yes. I formed my ranks and, and, you know, watched as... You hid the drone so I couldn't kill it. Yep. Um, and then the, the the zombies and the Astartes and the multiple characters, the no characters came marching across the center of the board. Uh, the sun came up a little bit. There was a dramatic moment. Um, my guns can finally sort of open fire on you. Um, at which point, Ahriman, who I was just using as a regular sorcerer, like a regular chaos sorcerer, yes. um, cast... Fails to cast one spell uh, to buff the unit next to him mm. and then immediately tries to do smite on one of your units, which is like mortal wounds, basically. Uh, fails his perils of the warp test and does three mortal wounds to himself. Yeah. And he only has four wounds. <laughs> and obviously this is a game about killing a general. So I'm like, yeah. oh shit, I've almost killed my own general. Mm. Um, but it's, he's on one wound. We then shoot, nothing, not a lot happens. You guys move forward. Mm. The lines are closing in and I'm like, okay, well... I could not cast Psychic Powers with Ahriman for a turn. But this is the turn that's going to... If I have a chance of scraping some of this back, I have to have every advantage. And things like plus one to hit or free moves yep. are a powerful thing, potentially. So, and also, Perils of the Warp is the downside of casting a Psychic Power, which means if you roll a double one or a double six, you take some wounds. And that's not that likely. Mm. You know what I mean? Like... Uh, so I roll my first spell and it fails. And I roll my second spell and it is double one again. Yep. So Araman kills himself. You didn't know, you, didn't, you never even had to declare him as a target of an attack. My no. general, in this game of Kingslayer, <laughs> my general managed to hoover himself into space yep. without any assistance. Sucked into a crack in reality. Yeah. Um, however, if you're, if a psyker is killed by Perils of the Warp, they explode mm. and deal mortal wounds to every unit near them. So Araman managed to not only completely destroy himself with no intervention from you, but kill three other space marines at the same time. Um, and then I shot at you a lot. Not a lot happened. I did finally kill all the poxwalkers. They are very, very resilient. Um, well, they are if you take nine five up disgustingly resilient saves and pass seven of them. Yes. <laughs> A fine moment. <laughs> the little smile on your face when I recorded. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it was mental dice that for that entire game. It was, it was so strange because it, it felt as though Nurgle had had smiled on on that battlefield. Yeah, that actually um, that the, the forces of the forty first millennium uh, had the advantage over thirty. Just got people. Who, just got steam. Like it was just it was just a, a, a outright dumpstering. Yeah, there was, yeah. There was there was no. Then at the end, the, the drone flew up and killed off a load more space marines. Um, the plague, uh, the poxwalkers all died eventually, uh, but then that put the uh, Lord of Contagion in combat, and he just he could kill four things a turn fairly easily. Uh, so yeah. yeah, that's it. I had one. I did attempt one heroic charge from the surviving tactical marine squad, and they failed it. So they stood there and just took yeah. their beatings, basically. Yeah. And gunned down. Just, it was just remorselessly. Horrible massacre. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> I had Start a lot of fun there. That was my first game of 40k since it came out. Yeah. It's, and I really like that. I mean to go on. Mm. <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, so it's, yeah, it's great. I think the, de even though you'll find the death god kind of dull, um, I really like the, 
picking targets with different weapon types and that kind mm. of aspect of the game, which is something that you don't guess so much in AOS. I think unless having, you know, played quite a, you know, more than relatively, relatively more than usual, a chunk of both games recently, I like the way they're different, actually. Yeah, like, yeah I agree. I, I, you know, the turn mechanic in 40k, the fact that it goes back and forth, um, I think is right for that game. Mm. But actually there are things about the strategic level of planning for the potential of a double turn or potential of giving away a double turn in AOS mm. that... Um, I think genuinely adds something to that game. I think, I think there's a risk with 40k system of it going back and forth is it can feel a little bit transactional. Mm. If you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, well, I've tried this and it hasn't worked. So I'm now fucked. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. in a way, obviously, obviously the, the turn handover, you know, the, the rolling for a, who goes first every turn, every round is swingy in AOS. But weirdly, AOS seems to be a lesson in the more swingy something becomes, the less swingy it feels. Mm. If you know what I mean? Like, um, because, well, actually, we should talk about this because we, so we played two games of AOS, one that we'll go through in some detail and one we played on Sunday. So a couple of days ago. Yeah. Um, on the terrain board and as part of a new narrative for our armies that we sort of set up. And I wanted to debut the chariot and I wanted to debut the changeling. Hmm. So we came up with a way of doing that. Um, and one thing that was sort of interesting was, um, that first game was very like pure AOS in some ways because I finally did some things with rules that you didn't know I could do. Mm. And, but also because we didn't have any terrain for that game because it was just the terrain board, it was literally just armies on a board. Yeah. Um, so, so broad strokes is it became a cool fictional conceit that your, uh, Stormcast forces had been sort of led to, uh, Shimon, the realm of metal, um, seeking the silver tower that, belongs to my gaunt summoner it may even be this may be the story of how your relictor got into the silver tower for our silver tower yeah, campaign yeah, it may be him looking for it again mm. like we haven't quite figured that out but we had this idea that the changeling who's a demon that can take any form um this is a trap like this is orchestrated as a trap the silver tower is not going to be where you think it is mm. sigma thinks that the you know your well your forces believe that they're coming down you know in the right place but they've been deceived. Their guide through uh, Shaman is a, a fire slayer, our friend Matt's character from Silver Tower, mm. who's been guiding them and kind of, you know, begrudgingly leading them through the sort of, you know, like these sort of metal strewn wastelands. Only <gasps> to turn out to be a trickster demon of Zinch. Oh no. Who, through the expenditure of three different destiny dice, <laughs> is able to one shot your relictor on the first turn. Yeah. Wow. That, that, was, an, that was a rad moment. Cause mm. it was like, cause you'd only taken one hero. So it was like, yeah, yeah. my general was just one hero and the rest were just infantry. So yeah, you, that's it. General's off. Um, you won that game, obviously. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. It was, a, um, it was a really good game, actually. Um, it was border wars. So there are four points. Um, uh, the point in your own territory is worth one. The points equidistant between you are worth two each. And then there's one point in your opponent's search, it's worth four. And that's mm. the kind of Hail Mary thing. If you can get like a couple of turns on that, you're probably going to win. Um, and it, so it's a really interesting kind of, uh, scrabble for territory. And I had, uh, used my Vanguard Hunters for the first time. Yeah. That was a really cool moment. Yeah. It felt like, it felt like a little bit of a traditional you and me AOS game at the beginning, mm. because obviously I did my, like, obviously, you know that the dwarf is the changeling. Like yeah. we used, um, you set up the changeling in your opponent's territory and your opponent is sort of forced to treat it like a member of their army until it reveals itself, mm. but it can't really do anything. It can slow a unit down, which was interesting. Yeah. I had it slow down a unit of prosecutors. Mm. Um, but you know, its purpose is for that ambush. Like it can kind of lurk around behind a hero model, then reveal itself. 
cast a spell and guarantee the mortal wounds with destiny dice yeah. to kind of just wipe something out, mm. which I think is an important part of the Zinch toolkit mm. for dealing with certain things. Um, and it was a neat thematic thing, but you know, we used the dwarf model to represent it while it was hidden just because that's fun, not yeah. because it was a sort of massive thing. Yeah, sure. And then, um, but that was a sort of variant on a theme, which has been a lot of our games because I rely a lot heavily on spells and things like that. A lot of our games on shooting start with like an overwhelming show of force by me hmm. and you pulling it back through pure resilience and your own set of sort of special abilities and hmm. sort of things you can pull off. And, and that was what was really cool about this game is I thought I'd been sort of clever, like screening my backline with pink horrors and kind of being careful, but your hunters who can come on from any board edge arriving behind me to kind of like surge into the my own sort of backfield objective which was a sort of vortex of magical power was both really thematic and also a really cool strategic moment in the game yeah and it's pure that's the pure fantasy of the vanguard hunters which are amazing models they're basically stormcast with axes and bolt pistols and they can come in they can come on seven inches away from the enemy normally it's nine inches and the reason that's important is because you roll two dice for your charge uh getting a seven is a 50 50 the odds of getting a nine are lower yeah um so you it was the big kind of 50-50 Hail Mary. If they get in, great. If I score that objective, that's four points, probably going to win because it's tight everywhere else on the board and it's probably going to be roughly stalemate. Um, I also had the Fulminators in uh, in space and my plan for the whole game was to keep them in space and then when they came down, the Hunters would come down on the same turn and try and just shock something off or, or fix mm. a flank or get the back objective, the, the most expensive objective. Um, but it turns out your Flaming Chariot came screaming down a flank and actually started to menace my own uh, backfield objective. And I only had like five liberators on that because you've gone through some stuff. So luckily I, I I rolled the three plus I needed. The formulators came down in my backfield to deal with it basically. So the chariot's aggression forced me to put the formulators uh, in a defensive position rather than using it to capture aggressively. Um, but that was, a, that was a really cool moment as well. Just a lightning bolt coming down, the formulators coming out, charging down the chariot of zinch they were definitely the heroes of that game and that'll set us up for the next one as well mm. because um something that i think that game revealed about our armies and i'm starting to understand mine more mm. like i think there's there's one there's a there are a bunch of reasons why i have been why i lose every game of age of sigma that i play pretty much is uh what well chiefly i'm bad but but broadly um my army is sort of expensive in some ways it's costed like an elite army but all of its power comes from special abilities synergies combos and spells yeah um stat lines are by the game standards below average for the most part mm. like one or two things have okay weapons or uh, the chance to do well skyfire is good <laughs> skyfire is good don't have them yet because yeah. i've been focusing on my demons because that's kind of what i like um but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, for the most part, the, the, the Zinch Demon army that I'm sort of seems to be focusing on now. They don't have a Paladin equivalent, for example. No. They don't have any. Um, yeah. Whereas, and almost, with the exception of things like the Vanguard Hunters and a few special abilities, Stormcaster go the other way. Um, yeah, definitely. You're, you know, you have cool things you can do, but the fundamental strength of your army is in its stat line, which just trends slightly above average. And all, as fits them, they're, you know, a little bit of the Space Marine archetype. Yeah. They're just slightly better at most things than the average person. Mm. And demons are slightly weirder at most things than the average person. Um, um, the reason I think that's super interesting and it played into that game a bunch is it means that, um, I think one of the reasons I've been struggling with the game generally is it's very, it's almost impossible to forget stats because you read them every time you do something with the unit. Like yeah. I hit on a three or whatever. 
it's very easy to forget synergies. It's very easy to forget that if my horrors are within nine inches of a herald, they get add plus one to their casting rolls, and that's a big deal. It's very easy to forget that if my screamers are within nine inches of a herald, they turn enemy sixes to hit into ones. Like, stuff, you know what I mean? All this stuff yeah. stacks up and piles up, uh, which is very appropriate to a demon's each army, which is all supposed to be sort of tricky and weird and shifting. But it's easy to forget. And, um, you know, I did two bad AOS player things in that game, forgetting to charge mm. with units that I'd moved in order to charge them, and I just forgot. Yeah. Which is dumb. It's the kind of thing you learn not to do. Yeah. But there were things, there were other moments like, um, I think when you, when your formulators finally kind of wiped out my flamers, um, I should have been able to roll a dice to see if the flamers split and come back. Right. But I just forgot to roll it. And then I sort of test rolled it off the table and got the six I needed, mm. which might have made, you know, a, a big deal. So, so learning one for me was stop forgetting all of the things that your units are, you're paying for. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like you're paying for those little addenda and, you know, little footnotes and all those units. Mm. I have to actually use them. Um, and the, but the other side of it, and I'd be interested to see how you feel about it a couple of days later is like, my stuff is shenanigans-y. Your stuff is stolid and understandable. Yeah. Right. Um, I knew your Vanguard Hunters couldn't come on from a board edge. I factored that in. Um, I knew your formulators come down from space. Try to factor that in. Not fully bubble wrapping my heroes, but having things behind them. So they can't just be, you know, jumped and pushed. Yeah. Um, the, the, one of the moments of the game, which was like, I can do this now is, is you, you'd pulled off your kind of gambit with the hunters. You'd charged my backfield objective for four points. You'd piled into the pink horrors that were guarding it. Mm. And most of whom were out of range to claim it. It was about how, who had more models within six inches. You'd done a crazy gambit sending the one surviving prosecutor all the way down the board to join them. To just about tip the To just about have one more model in range. Mm. Cause you knew that I was going to remove the models when you killed the pink horrors. You, I was going to remove the models that were out of range yes. in order to keep them in. Mm. And you did all of that. And the thing that you didn't, well, it's not that you didn't necessarily account for, but the thing that kind of happened hmm. is then I roll Battleshock for the Pink Horrors and I commit a one from my destiny pool. And when Pink Horrors get a one for Battleshock, you roll a dice and that many of them come back. Right. And I rolled a five. And so obviously I just put them back in the unit. So I put them in range of the objective. Yeah, so yeah. suddenly everything you'd done had been completely counteracted mm. by um, my special rule. And that was obviously a bit of a sad moment yeah. at the time. It's a learning experience. Um, what I should have done is not attack you. You can charge and not attack. So what I should have done, which is stupid, but I should have charged them in and just had them not actually attack anything. Yeah. Which is kind of, is dumb. <laughs> it's, really, it's not a war game, is it? <laughs> to some extent. But so this is an interesting thing to, before we get onto like the, the game we just played, but mm. this is important context for that. I feel like, We've both learned loads mm. about our armies. And there's an interesting question because there's a game feel question. Like, I know from the look on your face that that moment didn't feel great because you'd done what you felt was like the gambit. Yeah. And it hadn't paid off, not because of a combat role or something kind of honorable like that, <laughs> right. but because of basically demon bollocks. Yeah. But it's to be expected. It's, it's themey. I think that um, it undermines your decision making in a way that feels very bad. So you 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 make the right decision. Uh, you make, yeah. you, you do everything right, but then... The question, Actually, so the question yeah. I have is, so every, every part of what I did mm. was public information. Mm. You knew I had a one in my destiny dice pool. You knew pink horrors can do that on a one. Yeah. I, I you, forgot. If you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. there's the element of like, um, so that's then it's not to say that, cause I think basically, I think that I guess my, my feelings about it was you had made absolutely the right decision mm. against a different unit. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if they had been, 
Blood Reavers or a cheap corn unit, mm. that would have been absolutely the right choice. Against Pink Horrors, you have to behave slightly differently. Yeah, you have to not attack them. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. <laughs> that, like, that's, uh, that's if you're not going to wipe them out. Yeah. Um, it's, it's odd being combat not attacking, but that is literally one of the only situations where you, you have to be careful about it. But then I'll be careful about it in future. I think the problem is that the game kind of, in order to make good decisions, requires me to know your entire army book and every synergy. That's true. Whereas the reverse is a much better experience for you because my units are just much more understandable. That's true. Although I think I think the the reverse is also like I've had to do backflips the other way. It's like I've had to learn more about my synergies mm. and more about what I can potentially do. Yeah. Because, you know, so that game ended in a really spectacular fashion with the one surviving Fulminator basically charging the length of the board mm. to claim my backfield objective on the final turn yeah to win you the game which is a great story moment with this idea of like this is a stormcast beachhead they've been ambushed their general's been assassinated on the first turn yeah, yeah. and it's one heroic fulminator that manages to break the line and from a just from a purely role-playing point of view drive a fucking lightning spear into this fount of demonic energy mm. and buy them some time to regroup and like set recover. Up, yeah and actually set up a, a bastion there yeah uh, which um, leads us into our next game. Yeah. What was interesting about, like, so that was a great ending that was enabled by everything that had gone wrong for you and gone right. So over mm. the course of the game, I think the feel balances out, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I th- it makes great stories as well. But the thing I realized doing that is I can't, well, if I don't play it right, I can't kill some of those things. Mm. Is the problem I used to, Fulminators in this game, the problem I used to have your retributors is they'd come down it's and... Shaken. My, you know, spells can be swingy, that kind of thing. If it doesn't go spectacularly well for me, it's like, I just can't shift them. Hmm. It's like, it's just this ball of stuff that not through any sort of shenanigansy rules, just through the sheer maths of hmm. three up saves and difficult wound rolls for me and that kind of thing. Loads of wounds, just yeah. walk towards me hmm. and I do the zinchi dance and throw sort of marshmallows at you. And then you <laughs> defeat me and always. I'm like, well, I guess I'll return to the realm of chaos. Goodbye. Yeah. Like, and so, you know, it's it's a very sort of like I have to learn more about my army and mm. I have to learn more about how to account for that rather than just hope that this time will be the time the spells do it. Yes. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Um but it's made me think a lot about more deeply about how the game works and realise things like Pink Horrors, they're sort of good at a bunch of different things. They can shoot, they can cast spells, they're rubbish in combat, but they can be buffed. They're not their their one thing that justifies them being so expensive is they're good in like every phase of the game. Mm. So the thing I've realized is the longer they're around, the better they are mm. because they get to do more things on a, if they don't die. Yes. So keeping them back and using them to sit on objectives in weird ways and then move around and mm. that, you know, that has helped a lot. And it also means that I'm thinking more like a Zinch player, like I'm doing things that don't look right from a battle point of view. Mm. Like sometimes this team is just leave but that kind of capricious play style is actually very themey and i think that's what's made me feel like it's not just like and now i have rules to you yeah it's like because i mean you even said it during that game like um if the you know i think you used the phrase rules twat to define having that fulminator pull out of combat and charge the objective yeah in order to cap it and win the game right right but actually that was super funny yeah like, especially it was like your, your fulminator was in a fight with the changeling and one flamer mm and you know no that stormcast warrior then just sees the actual problem across the battlefield <laughs> yeah and the general's dead someone's got to make a clear-headed decision and he spurs his lizard mount on and charges across the battlefield and wins it mm. you know what i mean like yeah yeah it's true it didn't feel like you exploited some crazy 
wording felt right. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, that's using the core rules, isn't it? I mean, it's, if it's in the core rules, everyone understands everyone else's maneuverability and mm. fundamental actions and what they're able to do in a, in a combat. So it feels like it's, they're the rules of war in a way. Yeah. And that yeah. you're, you're exploiting those. The difference between each thing is that, um, like, I'm not going to read your book, you know, in order to be able to play True. against you. And that's the, that's when it feels very different because, mm. You're operating on different rules that I don't have. I don't know or yeah. have access to, and therefore I, I can't really like. I don't know how to behave or what to do with my units that isn't going to get kind of counteracted. In I do. Crazy I do ways. think. I do think that's a relatively universal experience to some extent. Mm. Like I, I you know my my learning experience over a lot of the games we've played has been just learning. Oh, I can't actually kill that. Yeah. Like I mm. don't. You know, I think this is enough way advice to. Oh no, it's not. Or don't stand near that building. Yeah. Well, yeah. We should. So we should talk about the game this led to. Cause yes. Because yeah. we're going to go through blow by blow a little bit. Mm. Um. So we've, you know, a couple of days later, we, uh, today, we came back to that scenario. Essentially, mm-hmm. a Stormcast had survived the ambush on the beach and moved up into an area that now had some terrain in it. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. I remembered to bring the terrain this time. Indeed. Useful. Uh, like a kind of, uh, sort of ruined, ta- like mystic, mysterious ruined settlement with mm-hmm. lots of eerie, arcane bits and bobs. Um, the battlefield looked amazing with the terrain on it as well. Yeah, the the photos are really good, I think. Mm. Um, and uh, Relicter returns because they're very good at coming back from yeah. Azir. Masters of death. He's brought the Herald there, <laughs> and a, a bunch more units, a lot more shooting, long strike crossbow men. Yeah, I wanted to use great. them for the first time, mm. which is uh, interesting. Um, and I decided to swap out the Gaunt Summoner and the Changeling and bring in Chaos Sorcerer Lord and Ilgroid Thaumaturge. Mm. Uh, the Doom Bull kind of um, Giant Minotaur Man. Minotaur Man. Mm-hmm. Um, kept the Chariot, added some Screamers, uh, Herald on Disc, and some Pink Horrors. Mm. We played an interesting scenario, uh, which is... Oh, hold the line. I think Take that. and hold. Take and hold. That's the one. Mm. Where each of us has one objective in the middle of our territory. Uh, if at any point you hold both of them, but that requires having units on both of them, with the enemy having no units on them, you instantly win. Mm. Otherwise, after five rounds, it comes down to whoever has killed the most. And this was, I think, a really interesting game, partly because I decided to build my army just from a sort of spells and upgrades kind of way in a way that I've never done before. Yeah. And so specifically, I piled a lot of different synergies onto the Ogrod Thaumaturge, including giving him, making my general, giving him a command ability, giving him an artifact, giving him a spell, Hmm. all to boost his melee prowess. Um, to make him, um, like a combat monster at least for one amazing round. Yeah. Um, because I, you know, I rely a lot on spells to get damage out and I wanted, I wanted some power in reserve. However, the game panned out that I could just actually punch a hole in a Stormcast line, which has always been my problem. Mm. It's like throwing things at a Stormcast line and going like, well, I guess I didn't do anything. Goodbye. Yeah. Like, um, what were your kind of army construction thoughts? Uh, so I basically took the stuff I wanted to use because it was new. Mm. I'd use the Vanguard Hunters on Sunday, so I wanted to use the um, Long Strikes to see if, if they were useful. And plus they're always potentially good against um, uh, Zinch or Lynch, uh, armies that use Lynchman heroes. Uh, they are snipers, basically. They have mm. these enormous uh, crossbows that they have to put on little stilts because they're so huge. And uh, they've also got an Aether Wing that warns them if someone's about to charge. Um <laughs> which is awesome. They're really gorgeous models. Mm. Uh, so I took them. The rest was uh, a couple of units of Liberators who have just battle line standard um, hammer and shield dudes. The, uh, then I took a unit of Judicators who are the very good shooting unit that Stormcast have, another kind of battle line unit. Um, and I had my Heraldor and my Relictor and two Formulators. 
Hmm. Who are the dudes riding dragons? Who are very, 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 very scary. They're very, very, very good in the game. One of the best units of the game. Um, so, uh, also, we should say we, we teleported in a rule from a different scenario for fun. Yes. Um, which was, I think it's called like sort of Ferris Storm or something like that. Hmm. And it's from another scenario set in the realm of metal. And the idea is at the beginning of every round, um, as in before either of us have taken our turn for a particular round, we roll a dice on a six, a, a storm of iron iron shards has swept through the area yeah which reduces all shooting and spell casting to three inches and every unit has a chance to take a mortal wound if it takes a mortal wound it then can't uh run or charge for the rest of the turn mm. which is really interesting because as a magic and shooting heavy army has potential to completely shaft me but like we picked that before we settled on the exact armies and yeah. it's interesting that you got on very ranged heavy as well with the long strikes and the judicators yeah, yeah and so at the very beginning of the game just to explain something about how i set up uh, and actually thinking for once, I realized that, like, I lose loads trying to charge you because the thing is about, I've got good spells and good shooting, but everything I've got is an 18-inch range mm. and everything of yours is 24 or more. So in a straight fight, you'll get at least one turn yeah. where you're shooting at me and I can't protect everything. And I'm probably going to lose something important, a hero or, mm. you know, some. I can't, you know, doesn't work like 40k, I can't hide a hero. So my thought was, I'm going to hide and I'm not going to risk I'm going to let Tom come to me. Mm. I'm going to hope something important comes my way that I can kill. Right. And I'm going to hide. But if the storm kicks in, that's when I'm going to take advantage of flying movement on screamers and things like that. And then I'm going to run in Mm. because then under the cover of the storm, I can potentially get on top of you so that we have at least a, a turn where we're both shooting rather than just you. Yeah. And that, that was, that was game plan also i'm not going to stand next to buildings yes. if i can possibly avoid it mm. but i also want to hide behind buildings so you can't shoot me it's and a classic it's conundrum a conundrum mm. so yeah so i got um the first turn there was no storm and my first time was basically just spent casting defensive spells on myself mm. and hiding like retreating to the back of the board because you def- deployed in a kind of really solid great looking <laughs> yeah. storm cast the golden line formation <laughs> um so yeah and then yeah, so in your opening gambit. Uh, yeah, so um, my relics has a spell called uh, um, Lightning Chariot that casts on a 3+, plus and it, anyone within 3 inches, you can just send them surging forwards on a, a wave of lightning. Um, so they can just go 24 inches at the board, and that counts as their move, essentially. Uh, and then they can charge from there, they can shoot, they can do stuff, but essentially it just gives them a, a, a great big punt forward. It's very good for combat units. Um, so I used it on my uh, uh, formulators and sort of sent them up that flank, uh, on the same flank as uh, uh, the bull dude. So the bull dude and the castle sort of hiding behind a building on yeah. that flank. And the fl- um, the flame chariot was on that flank. Yes, it was. And I know that if I kill one or two of those things, nothing else can hurt me. <laughs> so yeah. I just go and try and kill it, basically. Because um, the the pink horror is fine, really. Um, and the zappy spells can take do some mortal wounds, which Stormcast tend to worry about, but not enough to actually endanger the rest of it. So I, I think I just grind out or win based on that. So I just, uh, yep, sent them up. And uh, waited to see what happened. Hoped I could get a charge off. And so I, um, I was, I, I then won the roll off for the second round, mm. which was important. That was an important roll off, particularly because I, one of the things I had been thinking about in the time since we played our first game and things I've been trying to crack, because I'm going to do a tournament with this army. I need to yeah. figure this stuff out is how do I kill something like a Fulminator? Mm. Because they have, each one has seven wounds, which is a really important number because it means that even mm. some of my D6 mortal wound spells, I can't destiny dice them off. No. Right? Not without multiple 
you know it's a huge expense in terms of my game yeah momentum um like i really have to pile everything like and even then like some of the other siege spells can do it but it's super swingy like mm. there's a lot of d3 damage rolls that could go wrong and mm. a lot of them so I yeah, can't, you yeah. know so this allowed me to initiate my plan basically um which was to pile every buff in the world onto the Argroid Thaumaturge, mm. who is as close to a really good fighting unit as I've got. Um he has I gave him a command ability that allows him to potentially do mortal wounds on 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 wound rolls of sixes, but also plus one to his wound rolls. Mm. Um also rerolling once for everything. Also Mystic Shield. Also he has mortal wounds when he charges. So I moved him out from behind cover and and I, I mean I, this is obviously a, you know Again, there's one of those moments of like, you know, the face falls as you see that I'm just casting every wizard in the army just turns and starts piling power into the Ogre Thaumaturge. Yeah. Who presumably is tattoos to sort of erupt with yeah, magical he's, energy. He's going to go like, Super Saiyan yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, he goes Super Saiyan, runs around the corner of the building. Mm. Um, and I committed, uh, a destiny dice to basically confirming the charge because failing the charge at that point is game over. Mm. Like I've, I've I'm totally. Yeah. Like, so confirm the charge, get him in. The chariot did fail its five-inch charge, but, mm. oh well. Yeah, chariot's fine. Um, I think it might have made a difference because of what happened next. But basically, and also I'd given the Thaumaturge an item it could use once in the game mm. that allowed it to fight twice in the combat phase, basically. Right. So I fight, then you fight, then I fight again. Mm. Um, and this was kind of the result that I, I wanted, was like to hit that, that unit as hard as I possibly, possibly could to buy myself some space. Yeah. So the Thaumaturge... Um, over the course of its two rounds of attacks, managed to do 12 wounds to the Fulminators, killing one and mm. getting the remaining one to uh, five health. Yes. Which was like, um, really, really wanted to kill it mm. both. But I think I might have done if I'd gotten the chariot in as well, or I'd have mm. a better chance at doing it. Um, but I'll, I'll take it. It was a good, yeah, a really good um, result for me in terms of like, the plan coming together essentially yeah. uh so that took one of them off and then i think they stayed in combat for another turn they did so the next turn was the one where you've you've got the heralder in range of the ruin that's right so yeah, yeah the heralder was just walking up normal normally and this is the trumpet guy he blows uh his horn at scenery and it explodes uh dealing more to stuff nearby um so he honked at the building everything was hiding behind and rolled uh, a five, which is a good result. Means everything in five inches. It was actually a perfect wounds. result because if you rolled mm. a six, your f- surviving fulminator would have been taken as well. It. Yeah, but so that alone did. I think it, I wrote down that it did eight wounds total. Yeah, so it did. It hurt the chaos sorcerer lord. It hurt the herald. It hurt the chariot, and it hurt hurt the thaumaturge. Mm. Um, not enough to kill any of them, mm. but it was definitely like holy shit. That's a good value. That's a good damage unit. Uh, but then you know, not stand it next to buildings. Yeah, the, except when you yeah. really need to charge some fulminators. Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, I was playing for the double turn really, and it didn't come off because if with the double turn, the fulminators would have gone just charged that buff. Not uh, the unit hadn't been buffed yet; they've just killed him. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so that didn't come off, and they're out of position, and they got charged by something insane that I didn't know could possibly happen. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was what kind of sucked about it really is that uh, it's just. Uh, what, what was I supposed to do about that? You know, that, that uh, we didn't know it could happen. And then yeah, couldn't have planned one. around it or done anything about it. Uh, I certainly wouldn't have sent them anywhere near it. If I, I suppose we did, know. we did like, I suppose it's that thing, because we do go through the, the, the army list at the start of the game. 
but yeah, you know, but, the, the feeling it and, and understanding the practical reality of it is a lot different. I agree. Yeah, like, I mean, I mean, to... you say like it's hard to remember your own synergies. Just being read out a list of things at the start, I I can't like suddenly understand what. No, uh, maybe I, that I no, I, I do get it. it. I'm just sort of it's interesting. Like, yeah, yeah, it's a sort of. I think it'll be a perennial problem. Every time you encounter a new army, stuff mm. like this will happen. Yeah, so it's, yeah. Like, it's almost like part of the fabric of the game. Mm. Like, but then, it, but that means that like I've lost a quarter of my army in points terms in a game that's all about points cost. Um, so that's like so far down. Yeah, so I only had to work really hard to kind of pull it back. Um, I mean that Minotaur stayed buffed as well. Like it, it got that double turn of combat in that one instance. You couldn't do that again, but it was still insane. It was still like having a dragon on the field <laughs> essentially. Yeah, yeah. So in that turn of combat, so this is the end of the second round. Mm. Um, you you got unlucky, and obviously the Heralder did an amazing amount of damage like yeah because i mean the way the way i think about it is like i piled you know hundreds of points worth of units and upgrades i only used once and, and you know built my list to do that one thing mm. um and obviously that had to, that was based on on dice and so on like in order to do 12 wounds total uh to a tough unit mm. and the heralder's just ability with no dice falls involved apart from the range of it yeah naturally did eight wounds so there's a sort of there's a sort of like, but you I understood the situation that i did yeah. you exposed yourself to that yeah damage. i think i did and i think but i think similarly that comes from my experience of being surprised by that in previous games mm. so this feels like what i'm saying i guess is that over a long view i mm. think these experiences balance out a little bit yeah i think as you play one person at aos a lot or any game like this you learn things mm. and if, i think actually the reason that i would defend it a little bit is in terms of our encounters in terms of the story of the encounters between our armies as well these feel like meaningful moments mm. like that swing one way or swing the other based yeah, on yeah. surprises and um again the thing i'm trying to i guess justify as some of this negative play experience stuff or the negative experience of being surprised by something and losing to it can translate into not only playing differently but also they they are moments right mm. like they are still moments like it's a moment when you're the very first game we played where your herald honked at a big pool of lava and just coated half of my stuff and <laughs> yeah. i was like okay i guess he can do that yeah like you know what I mean? Like, I think that's a very easy ability to understand, though. That's the difference between this and Zeech, where, like, I guess that Zeech does hide his power. That's the part of his whole deal. But in terms of, like, it just, my decision was stupid. And it meant that, um, it felt bad because, uh, it, like, it, it was an idiotic thing to do, but I had no way of possibly knowing that it was, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, and, and it's that hindsight thing of like, well, okay, that just happened. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I, I suspect like surely in any strategy game context, moving a unit far out in the, ahead of your army mm. puts it at risk. But the thing is like, I've killed that, that thing before repeatedly and I yeah. know what it can do. Uh, and then it suddenly became a different thing. It changed as each, um, but yeah, so it, it felt really crap, actually. Um, it, it, I think it was good for the story of the game, but like those swings can, uh, when they feel, make you feel like an idiot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah, I certainly didn't want to make you feel like an idiot. I think oh, it's no, an no, interesting yeah. discussion because it's like, yeah. also it was like one of the first times in my life that I haven't forgotten something important. Yeah. Like I, I pulled off the buffs. I, I remember that the Chaos Sorcerer Lord has two different buffs. And I have always forgotten to use one of them. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the you know what i mean the other side of it is part of that over you know part of the reason you haven't seen this stuff mm. is kind of constantly forgetting to use things that right. i'm paying yeah. points for yeah so is... stuff is kind of behaving differently now like uh, yeah on your side because you're remembering to use it properly so i'm like oh, what that can do that i didn't know that i've fought these things several times before and that's a different uh, like a, a an odd experience as well yeah i mean not necessarily a bad one though I no i think but i think the, the flip side to that is you know we've we've said before i think in the context of getting smashed every game on mm. my part that you know oh 
this army is just not a good matchup for Stormcast. It can't crack them. Yeah. And this was me trying to find a way to, to, to change it and to be, to play it differently. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm very conscious that I never want to like gotcha an opponent mm. with like that. I think that's the definition of a gotcha though. Like to, to an extent, but it, it was also, you know, I, I, I hid those guys behind a building in the hopes that you would send the fulminators to kill them mm. because you weren't going to get to shoot them. Yeah, like, that's triggered a gotcha of, moment. <laughs> but, but that's a, a bait. At what point does that not yeah. become a, a legitimate strategic choice to kind of bait a, uh, like, a yeah, base an important unit down the flank? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was, it was good. It just felt bad. Yeah. Um, but that's fair. So I was down like 260 points there. You lost them on the next turn, but yeah, like, and then, they did um, that turn, but yeah. They, uh, yeah, they, they were really bad. They're about ruled badly as well. So they get there. An amazing yeah, that, that was genuinely unlucky. You probably should have killed the Thaumatos then. I think so. Yeah, two rooms left. And, um, the Jackal's got an amazing breath attack that does, uh, D3 attacks, and if any of them hit, it's two mortal wounds. Uh, and so that was just a shooting attack alone. And then in combat, you completely whiffed as well. So that was unfortunate. And then, um, the, um, th- uh, Ogroid Thaumaturge, mine is all charged down the flank, killed my Heralder, who, no- who certainly didn't stand a chance. And the flaming chariot came down with it. Um, but I think this is perhaps when the storm happened. So that was the turn the storm happened. Yeah. So yeah. like after, so after that turn, our, our second flank, when the, when the fulminators died, mm. um, the storm happened middle of the game, turn three, yeah, have a nice yeah. moment in a way. Like, yeah, it was cool. Um, and then I won the roll off for that turn, which meant that, um, I could enact that thought I had, which is like that, this is the turn I go. Mm. Like, so I charged up with the screamers and the, some of my units at mortal wounds, but like the ones that didn't, well, the ones that did luckily still have huge moves. So the fact they can't run is like, well, 16 inches across the board anyway. Yeah. Fly. Sure. Um, Moved the flamer as far, the scream, the chariot as far as it could go and the thaumaturge up as far as he could go. Um, I then committed and moved my pink horrors up to get them into potentially shooting range next turn. Hmm. And then committed more destiny dice to get the, make sure they get some charges in on the, um, heralder. Hmm. Uh, cause the, those guys hadn't been affected negatively. And, um, it was a bit of a, like, it was a, you know, the, the, uh, luckily because the, um, because the storm restricted spellcasting range to three inches, I couldn't buff up the thaumaturge. Well, he could buff himself, but other, like he wasn't within three inches of any other, yeah. uh, unit. And stupidly, my chaos sorcerer lord had run away from the building mm. in the hope, because if the heralder didn't die, I did not want to get honked again. No, no. But that left him in a stupid position where he was basically out of range of everything for the rest <laughs> of the game, just hiding. He was standing in the, the very corner of the board. Yeah. Looking like, very scared. Especially with a three inch range on stuff. So he yeah, cast yeah. his own buffs on himself for no reason right. and then just, just like stood there like good. a lemon. <laughs> but yeah, the, then the kind of, um, in the, during the, the iron storm, the Ogro Thaumaturge and the chariot were able to, um, kill the heralder. Hmm. Which makes the battlefield a lot safer for me because there's mm. a lot of terrain on the board, and each of it is potentially a six-inch mortal wounds bubble. Yeah, so he had to die; like he absolutely had to die. Yeah, he's good. Um, 120 so that, points. <laughs> yeah, so that's a success. Um, I think the storm hurt you more than it hurt me. Uh, yeah, basically, rendered my army useless. <laughs> um, I like a lot of the damage output was shooting, and they couldn't do anything. So it felt like. Well, I don't get to play the game for a turn, essentially. So I just had to castle. You'd get specifically unlucky in that the one, um, the unit that could have done something. So your, your relic to, um, true from combat, you, you had some liberators near the front that could have charged the Thaumaturge, mm. but they were the ones that took a mortal wound. Yeah. So, so they, they were affected by the storm and couldn't move or charge yeah. or do anything. Yeah. So I, which meant I couldn't screen, uh, as well as I'd like. They could move, but they couldn't charge. You did move them up, I think. But yeah, I moved them up and I moved the other unit of libs outwards to form a screen around my archers and, um, which was looked pretty well. 
like looks like a thing an army would do. Yeah, it did look like um, sort of holding rank against your yeah um, against the onrushing demons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, shield wall, move forwards, sh- shooting over the top. It was uh, proper like you know yeah medieval stuff. It was great. So the storm cleared at the beginning of the fourth round, mm. and this was actually a like a big turn for you. Where I thought maybe that it was going to completely swing the other way. Yeah, well, I think because I chipped a lot of wounds off with the heralder, so I was able to try and shoot off the Ogroid Thaumaturge, which I did successfully. The, the, the relic killed him with lightning. The relic zapped him and he died. Yeah. That was satisfying. Which is a nice um, story moment as well, because those two have yeah. had rivalry since our very first game. Yeah, they've hated each other for, for yeah. centuries. Um, so, And actually, finally, the Ogroid Thaumaturge has uh, justified it, because mm. he hasn't just charged into the first thing and died instantly. <laughs> That's his first traditional role. Yeah, he said something. Uh, so that was that was good. He, he uh, summoned uh, his faith in Sigmar, called for aid, slammed his staff in the ground and uh, blew that minus all to dust. Then I th- uh, shot the... The Judicators killed the chariot. Judicators killed the chariot. He had a couple of wounds left. And I think that I think I chipped some wounds off your Heralder with the long strikes. Yes, you did. Yeah, you got him down to two wounds, I think. Uh, yeah, so um, they could have killed him outright. Like, they, they are... They, if they hit, then bad things happen to... Mm. Uh, very good for sniper character models normally. Uh, they didn't get much chance to do anything with the game because of that lost turn and the fact that it was so hard to get them in range because they're very, very slow, which mm-hmm. is an interesting uh, interesting thing to learn for future. Like, if you're not, if they're not doing something most turns, they're not worth their points at all because they're like 180 points. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not cheap. Um, so it was an interesting experience in learning how to basically not use them. <laughs> um, though later on, I found a good use for them. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think as well, like, for a lot of this time, I was sitting on uh, a Destiny Dice 6 Mm. that was had ceased to be useful for damage or anything and that was purely save a hero that yeah. was the save a hero button yeah yeah which is good um so yeah uh, all these things coming rushing in i'm trying to snipe the heroes off uh but fundamentally just i'm not going anywhere i've, I've got nothing that can really move around and it was, it was also a, a mistake to build an army that couldn't move around a lot or didn't have those tricks like stormcast need those mobility tricks to yeah, be, have lightning to be chariot effective. and i guess you have the deep strike but yeah yeah so um Lightning Chariot's great, uh, but like I really miss the Vanguard. I really miss that threat. Just having the threat of being able to come on from somewhere to affect something or slow something yeah, down or definitely. pin something is actually really, really strong and really good. It was interesting, like um, because actually, like that turn won you three hundred and twenty points worth of damage. Yeah, that yeah. was you know, um, which was pretty close to what I'd killed of yours by that point. Yeah, like, in terms of pure equalizing, like it's not it's not miles off. I think I'd, I was slightly ahead. I think you were slightly ahead. But um, about 20 points or something. And it was um, the, all the points I'd poured into shooting actually doing something, which is which is good. Yeah. Um, and then it was actually ended up very, very close at the end. So we went into the final turn, I think. Yeah, into final five. Because like my, my turn four involved um, like essentially like resetting in the middle of the board like because mm. the herald i found that the herald on discs power stems from how maneuverable it is so i can he'd gone to the flank to help the thaumaturge and he just went straight back to the middle to lead the horrors mm. who i now weren't were, had stopped forgetting their bonus to cash when he's near yeah and that was you know conscious to kind of get that synergy up because i'd managed to run lots of stuff forward during the storm when they were safe i still mm. had like a full unit of 10 horrors screamers and things and the herald um now within 18 inches of your liberators and I think for me, like, I appreciate the things about this game that felt negative for you. For me, it felt like finally understanding what I could expect. Because mm. when you pick up 10 dice and you roll them, like, to throw the pink horrors, averages anything, ranged attack into some liberators. Yeah. It feels like, there's only five of them, there's 10 of me, fire! Mm. And then one of them takes one wound. And I've now played enough AOS to know that that's what I should expect to happen. Yeah, definitely. So plan for that. Mm. Like, commit 
um, you know, like commit things like destiny dice threes, which are not very useful, but that's on a D3 mortal wounds roll from any spell. That's, uh, two mortal wounds. Mm. And you've got a good chance of getting that or getting better than that, but you also got a chance of getting one mm. and understanding the maths of two here, two mortal wounds here is massively more powerful than one mm. because then on average, the pink horrors are going to actually do enough damage to kill this unit. Mm. And you know what I mean? Like that, yeah, those yeah. kind of very edge case things I've started to, I think, understand a little bit better. Yeah. Which meant that like, rather than like do what I've been doing a lot, which is like charge all the pink horrors in. Oh, they're gone. Mm. It was more like charge the pink horrors, move the pink horrors forward a bit, throw a volley of magic and stuff, and then get ready to retreat if you need yeah, to. Yeah. Like that kind of like, just seems like all over, isn't it? Being a little bit smarter about it, I think, yeah. honestly, like, mm. um, or like not, because then they realize like, oh shit, like I need to win on points. Like I'm not getting into your, I'm not getting to your objective for that yeah, major yeah. victory. Like you've got this huge golden iron steel shield wall around it. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, I did manage to charge the screamers in. Hilariously, the screamers, all three screamers charged, uh, one liberator prime. And traditionally our games do have a hero <laughs> yes, prime. Absolutely. Um, who took absolutely no damage from them whatsoever and then bonked one on the head on and killed it. Yeah. <laughs> Classic. Uh, Liberator Prime is not to be underestimated. Um, yeah, but you managed to get some bolts off and kill that unit, which was huge in the end. Um, they died at the start of the next turn, but yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so we were basically left in a situation where you'd kind of backed off. Because I, I think I had another round of shooting that was basically ineffectual. So, um, no, because what happened was... It wasn't... So what happened was, that was... Um, my turn at the end of round four. Right. We went to start around five. Oh, I yeah. won the initiative, which is a big deal because yeah. it meant, gave me a chance to get rid of the stuff. So, um, for once, I was glad that the hero phase becomes more the movement phase. Traditionally, mm. I wish movement came first so I could run things into range. Yes. Um, but what that allowed me to do was, um, arcane bolt away that final liberator mm. prime. Um, so hundred points on the tally. Yeah. And also use a spell called Thol Reality to add to return a screamer to the slain screamer unit, which just mm. makes the unit less likely to die. Yeah. It was my only way of getting wounds back, but get that out. Mm. Um, and then rather than just sort of blindly commit, realize that like this victory is mine. And from a story point of view, maybe it's that realization that like this stormcast attempt to establish a beachhead has been blunted. Mm. Now is the time to withdraw. Mm. Right. So the screamers run away. I moved the herald back behind a wall. Um, I moved that chaos sorcerer Lord back behind a wall. The, Herald is dead, so no more threat from that. Yeah. And I withdrew with the Pink Horrors. And the idea was to bring everything out of charge range for your melee units mm. and as much stuff as possible out of range. As much of the close-to-death expensive stuff. Yeah. Like my heroes, who were both on like two or three wounds, out of range of the long strikes and the mm. and the, the Judicators. But then, because that was all I did for that final turn of the game, but I really, really liked the gambit you made on that final round to win the game. We were so tight on points... Um, that if I killed one hero, I would sc- scrape a victory. Yeah. Um, so I, I moved up the judicators so that two of them could see the, uh, the herald. Then I, I used the relictor to lightning chariot the long strikes and successfully teleport, like, teleported them 24 inches up the board to a point where they could see the chaos sorcerer and get one sort of hail mary round of attacks in. Um, which actually odds on should kill him. Uh, they're rolling. They get one attack each. There's three of them and they hit on two plus. I rolled two ones. <laughs> uh, and the other one, had it been a six, would have caused two more all wounds, which would have killed him, but it wasn't. Um, yeah, he has to, yeah, he has to, yeah, yeah. Uh, cause you don't get saved again. No, I don't. Get yeah. wounds. Um, no, it was whether or not you had to hit to then do the more wounds, but no, you're right. It just had to be a yeah. six to hit. Yeah. Uh, and if, if they get through, they do two damage. Mm. Uh, so, uh, the one that hit 
he was on a three plus to wound and it rolled a two. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it was just, it was just flat unlucky. It was just like, a, I think if you'd gotten, if you'd not gotten the mortal wound, mm. um, so obviously the mortal wound will do it. That's a, that's a six. So that is what it is. Um, I, that was, I was luckily that Kessel sort had been casting his own buff on himself for the rest of the game because he had nothing to do in the sun in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. So he was in a reasonable place because he was going to re-roll ones. Mm. He had three wounds left. He was re-rolling all ones to save. And uh, I had that six in the death to dice pool yeah. ready to guarantee one of them. That's true. So I felt like that shot, like they're two damage. I think, each. I think, I think it swung way towards a whiff for you. Mm. I was still kind of like, poised ready to yeah, like ready to expect him. yeah ready to to try and protect him they're two damage as well they're really they're on paper really good hero killers um but there are a lot of points for not a lot of attacks and yeah if though that's like a point of weakness though that that roll of three dice like if that doesn't come off then they're a waste of points really because even if they if you get get them in the right position they've got to do well really it was a really cool moment though it like, was rad it looked yeah. awesome and i think there's, a, there's an element of like um it felt like it felt like a hail mary. Like yeah. it wasn't like a, a yeah. I did need a lot of dice to make it happen. I needed a three plus on the relic to, to cast the lightning yeah. chariot in the first place, and then I needed the hit. So that it was actually it was a gamble completely. It was the only thing I could do to affect the game really in that the, in its closing stages. And if that had, if I had managed to take it off, it would have been a pretty lucky victory really, <laughs> given that you deserve to win completely after taking out the formies in the heralder and like getting up that big points advantage at the start. And hiding your stuff, which like you shouldn't be ashamed to do <laughs> against the. Yeah, I think I've gotten over my sense of shame. Yeah, definitely. It's like actually play like fucking zinc. Yeah, yeah, like, definitely. Like they're the, they're the bad guys, and also just doing stuff sensibly makes the game more interesting. Like it's more challenging to play someone who's actually hiding stuff. Yeah, I think as well. Like you know, to the extent that obviously you've got to, you've encountered some some rules things that you hadn't encountered before. I don't think you've encountered me not playing like an idiot before either, which might have been a like, <laughs> like <laughs> it was still close. Yeah, it was still close. So. Um, you did, I think you managed to get some shots off at the Herald as well. But, I did, got a couple of shots. But I managed to commit my six from the Destiny Dice yeah, to, to save, save him. him. Uh, they, th- that was a real gamble. Like the, the odds on that were pretty low, but I thought, you know, you never know. Roll a lot, roll a bunch of sixes like I did yeah. earlier for and the first game. And that was game. That um, was game. It was yeah. really, really close actually. It was really interesting. I felt like, um, I built a bad army and it was so immobile that I didn't feel like I was doing very much for a lot of it because like it couldn't shoot that for one turn, couldn't really move very much. Um, the stuff that could move got zapped by that storm as well. So um, it felt like a, a bit, uh, I was a bit placid and didn't take the right things. That I, I prefer more dynamic armies. So in yeah. future, I'll, I'll build better armies based on that experience, which is cool. Yeah, and I think this has taught me that like I I want to play in a more evasive mm. way, I think, in a, in a sort of like lead you into a trap kind of way rather than a kind of, ah, I, mean, I think I've been playing a little like a corn player for right. a while, right? Mm-hmm. Like charging and hoping for the best. And, and, and that's not necessarily how each demon wins a game. Indeed. So I do want to make sure that like, I never, I ne- like it's the action player in me, but I never want to hide mechanics. Mm-hmm. And I understand, I completely get what you're saying that like listing out every ability you've got is not the same as explaining or expressing the reality of what it can do. Mm. And there's a, it's a tricky line there. It's a genuinely hard line to draw. Cause if I say to you, Hey, so I've put all of these stuff on the, th- on Thaumaturge mm. and in aggregate, I think this might be my way of getting enough damage to kill your fulminators. Yeah. Then that will change the fabric of the game. Yeah. yeah. Because you're not going to, but is that legit? Is it not legit? It's certainly never going to work again. So, mm. you know what I mean? There's a sort of, yeah. And I mean, I, I should have worked it out really, <laughs> but it was just like such a, there's so many spells and just got kind of a rapid fire going through all of them. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that could buff that plus one to that plus one to this plus one to that. We roll once to this. It's just like, you're not going to know 
you're not going to think, oh, well, if you put all of that on thermitage, should have thought about it. That's the yeah. thing. But that's and, a lesson. And next isn't it? time as that's well. That's a right? lesson. It yeah. feels like if this is maybe, you know, to close, like, as a closing thought, like, one of the nice things I think about the fact that A, this is a story, and B, it's an ongoing learning the game thing between you and I, mm. uh, at least when it comes to these two armies, is that this isn't I got dumpstered at a tournament by someone I'll never play again and something I'll never see again. No, that's true. You know, like like the time that I played against the Skaven with some warp lightning cannons and I lost a third of my army on the first turn <laughs> yeah, on things I didn't even have to... Yeah, it's just like, oh, well, this is over. Like, yeah. Like, boop, 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 yeah, know? I hate armies that do that. Like, um, like that stuff happens. Um, this felt like, okay, this was... I have gone back to my book, I've read it again, mm. and I've like, how do I stop this thing that has flattened me, you know? So mm. this was like, this was a minor victory for me in the end. It was the second game of AOS I have ever won. Mm. And it was the first one that I think I, I won because I thought about it ahead of time and didn't just get lucky. Yeah. So, uh, although obviously you do get, you know, I think the luck shakes out, but yeah. So, it does shake out. Uh, but yeah, was, uh, I enjoyed it. I, I look forward to the revenge. <laughs> that never is allowed to happen again. No, it's good. And it's going to be really interesting to build new stuff as well, because, um, that's going to change the way the synergies work. Um, I think like every time you add something new to the army, I will never be able to understand what it might do. <laughs> That's the thing about fighting as each army or a really elite complex army. It's like if I was fighting Stormcast and I put down um, some Vanguard Hunters, I read out the stat line and their special things. I'm pretty sure like it's easy for the opponent to get a grasp on it. Yeah. If some Skyfires come in, like anything could happen. <laughs> they, they could be the like, some amazing extent, I think I think there are things about like, there are definitely things that I get surprised by. Like, yeah. You know, like discovering that, oh, those, these on sixes are mortal wounds and that's, you know, scuppered something I was playing. Like, I do mm. think it goes both ways. I, I agree that it's maybe not, it's not 100% mm. even because like we said at the beginning of this bit, like a lot of my army is in its special rules, not in its stat lines. Yeah. And so that's naturally a little bit more opaque. But at the same time, I haven't memorized all your stat lines. Mm. Like I'm sitting there a lot of the time going like, I assume this is amazing. Right. And sometimes they don't, like sometimes they do actually crack under pressure and I just haven't exploited yeah, yeah. it enough or, or weighted the maths enough in my brain to figure out how much pressure I need to apply. Mm. And that's, you know, it is like, a learning experience. I think. Yeah, for sure. But that's each as well. That's how the, that army is 100% that's supposed inch. to work. Sometimes the screamers fly up, do nothing. Yeah, regenerate one of their number and fly away again. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so like the Zinch having hidden uh, potential and, and kind of is exactly how that army is supposed to work. So it's totally themy. Yeah. And um, also um, it's nice that we, you know, we can tell, continue to tell the story of this this sort of expedition which is now hmm. in some trouble right like you yeah know, yeah so, definitely like i think the next battle we play in that series and hopefully we will has become more interesting for the fact that we're now one one in this series rather yeah. than it being like and then everything was fine again i should send off like an onslaught it should be like a because we've established the beachhead and that's under threat now because uh, the the stormcast advanced has been blunted as you said hmm. um so a kind of counterattack from the zinch in which stormcast somehow perhaps defending a, a location that yeah, might, might be that, that might work be next well. step. Yeah, right. I look forward to it. Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. I'm gonna paint something new. Me too. Might might paint my Castellant. He's uh one of the first. He's just a solid hero. He just with a good dog. Got a good, he's got a lovely dog, and he's good with retributors. I'm going to paint some kind of demon hero who mm. might arrive at an hour of need to <laughs> cause some real real problems. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, that might means I might be able to. Yeah, use, might, you might get the ultimate cavalry charge, like yeah. the ultimate from space to turn the tide. I've had that guy painted for ages. I'm really excited to use him. Yeah, Ooh, exciting times in the realm of. And uh, I'm going to paint the rest of that battle board so we can do a six by four. Yeah, that's fantastic. We do two thousand points, perhaps. Yeah, might be able to stretch it. It's going to be that's really exciting. Mm. Good games. Content must flow. <laughs> I was about to say, like, corn cares not from whence the content flows. <laughs>
Content. Oh, content. Content, yeah. Yeah, stick with that. Yeah, good. Speaking of content, Tom. Yes. Not to make this jump any any more obvious. Mm. Should we do some questions from our valued listeners? Let's do it. If this sounds like a weird tonal shift from the thing you've just heard, a more sober discussion about uh, a series of battles that we've played and the ways that made us feel, then that's because not only have we taken a break, we've taken a break of about five hours. We've recorded a whole separate content. Um, content. content. <laughs> whole separate set of... It's really hot in it. Prime <laughs> now. content in that time yeah. before returning to this subject, as you and me now, Tom. Mm. Uh, it's real warm and we've had a few beers and so if this is a silly question section please do please do forgive us uh in advance but nonetheless we've got loads of questions very grateful for them yes so it's time to crack on see how we do with our question section that's definitely what's happening now mm. i'm not stalling for time i'm just rotating towards the questions <laughs> i found the browser window they're in good news everybody <laughs> Uh, Pete, also Vienna from Discord, writes, Hello, tiny paintbrush wielders. Last month I played a game of AOS which made me very excited to paint more of my magic rock quaffing Ratman than a game of 40k. And then a game of 40k using the Dark Imperium box set that made me very excited to paint my Death Guard. Soon after I finally settled on a colour scheme for my Dark Eldar vehicles, so naturally I was very excited to paint them. How do you keep working on the same army? I seem to flit about like a zinchy tentacle, painting the latest thing that's run across my brain. Yours indecisively. Fienia slash Pete. Yeah, that's, uh, I understand the, uh, the urge to kind of, um, because the armies have such defined aesthetics and such defined, um, techniques associated with, like, with their armor specifically. So the techniques you'd apply to Primaris armor, which is mm. full of, like, great big open spaces. Um, less kind of filigree that you know that just painting that feels very different to going into the Death Guard. That's why the Dark Imperium box is so cool in many ways because it gives you all of those different textures in one box. Yeah, smooth uh, things, gribbly things, yeah. flat things. And I'm really interested, uh, excited about painting up some Skitarii, uh because they're a different aesthetic again from anything I've painted. So it's almost like a it gives you that variation, like taking a break from like batch painting one type of aesthetic and moving into a different one is actually like a tactile difference in just how you're using your paintbrush and how you're applying your paints. I found as well that, um, I think again, I might be paraphrasing you, but it's always worth indulging in the, actually, no, I'm not. I'm, it's a completely different context. I'm paraphrasing Tom Francis mm. for an episode of the Great and Crowbar when we had the Tokyo 42 guys on and they were talking about flitting between ideas in dev, like suddenly just disappearing off to work on a completely unrelated feature when you know you should technically be doing a specific thing oh, yes. in a video game. And I think the same applies to painting to an extent. Mm -hmm. I almost made this comparison on that pod, but I remember I stepped back from it because it was like, my painting Tiny Plastic Man is not the same as developing a video game we've been doing for three years. <laughs> Except I think there's a similar lesson, which is that as long as you're doing something towards a project that you care at least somewhat about, mm. which is going to be almost all of them, then you're not wasting time. Like, you're not on a schedule. Yeah, if you've got a tournament to prepare for, maybe you need to plan yeah. it out a little bit better, be more disciplined. Mm. But if you're doing something, then you're going to eventually get the collection of miniatures that you have in your mind's eye, mm. as long as you're doing something towards that. And I found that I've never regretted, if I have a whim between two projects, if I finish one project and then I'm like, I want to do this. Like the Harlequins are a good example of that, even if they took up a bunch, big chunk of time. Or the two, the two Nurgle characters I did just to kind of block out 
just do something else. Mm. Um, you know, hypothetically, would I have finished for say my thousand sons earlier had I not done them? Definitely. Do I regret now having those extra models that I did? Absolutely not. Like, just you know, if your urge was to like. I don't know, bin half your model suddenly, then that would be a destructive urge. I don't, yeah. I think, I think as long as you're just, even if you're flitting between projects, if you're getting something done, then you're progressing. It's just mm. inefficient. And that's not a problem if it keeps you enthusiastic and happy in the project. Like, yeah, I've, I found that I've got almost too many boxes of things now. So I'm not going to buy anyone for a while because, yeah. um, I get a kind of paralysis now where I go, I want to do some painting, but I honestly don't know, should I start this guitar? Yeah, should I start the Primaris? Okay. There's, can't do the primaries because you need color scheme like there's a lot of kind of baggage around like there's obviously yeah. like baggage in the way now where if i had bought my one box of models for the month it's the only box i had i would devote myself to that and kind of be mm. focused on it and do it um so yeah I, there is a kind of paralysis to it i think i think yeah i think i think some purchasing discipline helps a bunch mm. and finishing things like i was really pleased to get the changeling done in a single couple of days after buying it that was like, a, that feels like the best return on investment because first of all it's a great model and also it had such a cool rules effect on the games that we played yeah and it's just uh and it introduced something new to uh kind of the stormcast siege uh ongoing feud with yeah uh, i kind of wish i'd done that with the i think this is one of the problems with like army drops or like getting excited around a big release mm. like at the moment say you're a space marine player and the primary stuff's all coming out and you yeah. might be tempted to be like oh hey i just got a payday or it's my birthday or whatever it is i'm gonna drop 200 quid and get a big pile of stuff that's pretty much exactly what i did when when siege got its big wave mm. with all the books and the boxes and stuff and stuff that i'm still working through but the problem with that is you end up with an like an instant backlog mm. whereas like coming to it six months after the fact, picking up one model in the changeling, even though I have a backlog mm. and just doing it was super satisfying. Yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, one way is just purchasing discipline, but the other half of it is like, if you're getting through stuff, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fret so much. The main thing is keeping your enthusiasm. Yeah, as long as you're it. It's yeah. Good. Absolutely. Our next question comes from Kingsley who writes, Dear boxed game and vast expensive hobby. Great pod, blah, blah, blah. Got me back into the hobby, blah, blah, blah. Question. <laughs> to the point. Mm. <clears throat> Returning to the hobby after about nine years, one of the biggest changes seems to be the re-emergence of boxed games from GW. I don't really have the time to commit to building a full-size 40k AOS army, so the prospect of picking up a box with everything needed to play and splitting it with a friend sounds quite appealing. The question is which game to choose. From a miniature's point of view, Silver Tower looks more diverse but I don't really know about the mechanics of the game. From your battle, report, battle reports, Burning of Prospero sounds like a really interesting set of scenarios, but I'm not sure how I feel about having more Space Marines in my life. Which of these or any of the other box games do you think would make the best entry point? Thanks for reading, everybody. Kingsley. Uh, and she has an, a nice footnote, which is, it really is a great pod. And I don't think I'd have the patience to understand the new ranges of models or the fact that everything has a pig Latin name <laughs> now without the encouragement of your enthusiastic podding. <laughs> to be fair... They always had big Latin <laughs> names. Did, yeah. uh, they, they used to be much sillier in fairness. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good question about the box games because we've talked before about how they're simultaneously great entry points but also really elite in hobby terms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think the Prospero box is much, much easier to paint than the... Mm, really? It took me six months. Yeah, but you invented like a mad... Uh, way of doing red <laughs> that meant, <laughs> <laughs> you invented you, you built yeah, your own fair. cage <laughs> but in that one they are just space screens you can paint them red and they'll be fine um but obviously i love the way you've done them they look awesome but you, you, that's like that's, you're right no that's i not did, part I, did. Of the box. That, I did yeah that was that was dumb um uh, no so, uh, i mean that was right no, but, so actually i i guess the reason i made a stupid noise and shut my head is <laughs> 
because I actually disagree. Like, I think those are tricky models structurally. Mm. Like, I think space marines are not actually the bastion of easy to paint that people sometimes think they are. Like, mm. things like backpacks and shoulder pads that cover big parts of the arms, guns held across the chest. Like, easy to paint is Stormcast, honestly. Yeah. Like, or at least you can, there's an interesting illustrative difference between those two things. Mm. Like, Stormcast, open pose, no backpack. Some of them have capes, but that's something you can work around. There are, yeah. there are difficult to paint Stormcast. I'm not saying universally. But I think like, but Zangor, little gribbly rats, tiny, tiny goblin models. Yeah. Like, okay. Silver Tower. Diffi- that's what I was, I was comparing the box okay. games. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, oh, oh, yes. If the comparison is yeah, those two, yeah, yeah. then absolutely. No, I wasn't comparing to start. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I thought we were, um, I think in terms of, I honestly think probably one of the new 40k boxes, because mm-hmm. I know they come with like a custom set of scenarios and like designed to be played with those mid- miniatures. Yeah. Like, as we said at the beginning of this episode, um, those are, that's a much cheaper entry point. So it's a little bit less risk. Like both Prospero and Silver Tower are 100 quid boxes with 50 mm. plus miniatures in them that will, will, will take you months to paint. Yeah. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, you don't have to care about, and if you don't care about painting or you want to take that a little bit easier, the fact that the new starter boxes are on, are push fit miniatures on colored plastic gets you into it really quickly. Yeah. Plus, um, I, I think the Dark Imperium box is great because, um, the supposedly like elite army, the, the hard to paint army, uh, which is the Nurgle one, looks good with just a wash over some flesh colors. Like genuinely, uh, if you really want to go to town on those details, then you can. But you, there is a, a basic application of paint that will get you a cool effect with mm. a, one of those Death Guard models for sure. Um, but I'm not sure that's true of the Silver Tower box, for example. It's, it really isn't. Yeah. It, the, it just won't work. There's nothing in that box that takes, just takes a wash. Hmm. Like, it's kind of amazing how many different complex. Like, <laughs> yeah. The, it's an amazing box. Even, though, even yeah. the little goblins, like, the way their poses work, because they're all spiders, they've mm. got a million legs, and they're in like a crouched, like, uh, quadrupedal, octopedal pose hmm. with f- fucking webs dangling yeah. off them. Like, and they're really hard to paint. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd like try to... by fire if you think you might figure out. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to try the Gorchosen box, which is, uh, a box of four corn heroes, mm. which is just a kind of arena mode where they go in and fight and it's just, uh, a game takes like half an hour, 45 so minutes. Regular, regular Crate and Crowbar pod friend Alex mm. has bought Gorchosen. Oh, really? Some, for some reason. So. You get some f- fantastic hero models in there. Um, and the corn heroes are brilliant, even though I'm not like a big fan of the way corn looks generally. It's like their heroes are fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And you get four really great independent corn hero models that are fun to paint. But also, I think you can probably like they would send. There's a lot of filigrees upon them, but you paint them red and wash them and yeah. pick out some flesh. Corn like. takes a little bit more. Takes a, a more like a, a roughshod approach, a bit better than Zinch does because Zinch is more yeah. about kind of the elegant, weird curving gradients and lines and there's and something really pristine about each that is supposed to be like really clean and beautiful yeah it's supposed to be weird to look at but like slanesh like it feels yeah. like there's like corn and nurgle are the relatively easy to paint chaos yeah and like, slanesh and yeah. each are the harder two because because corn stuff is supposed to be super battered and they don't really care about the way they look covered in blood covered like, in blood and, yeah and stuff and you dry brushes are brilliant for them because mm. it, dry brush over the metal looks great get some you know brass and dark red lovely colors looks good um yeah so uh, and it's a simple rule set it's easy to pick up and play with a few friends around the table um though we've not played it so i can't like fully match for how good it is i think yeah i think in terms of things we have played my choice would be either the 25 or 50 quid new warhammer starter sets Mm. 40k sort of sets because 
we can vouch for the rules. Yeah. And I think that's a meaningfully diverse set of things. It's not like a standalone game like Prospero is, but it's a way into the bigger thing if that's what you want, but you don't have to necessarily. Because like, I feel like with those 100 quid boxes, there comes some kind of commitment. Mm. Like, you know, 100 quid on Silver Tower, if I was judging that purely on the amount that we played of actual Silver Tower, it might not have ended up feeling worth it because it's obviously hard to arrange those kinds of things. Yeah. But in terms of getting me back into the hobby and giving me the core of a new army and uh, enthusiasm for a particular side of that fiction, mm. absolutely worth it, if you know what I mean. So yeah. it's like... It's interesting though, because the um, because Prospero gave you the Thousand Suns Force that you fought with me uh, today. Yeah, yeah. In 8th. That's true. Yeah. So, and you don't really get that from the Silver Tower box in the same way. You get a lot of disparate heroes and cool little units. That... Yeah, I think when Silver Tower came out, it felt more like it was about to be the sort of core set for an army than it actually is. Yeah, and sure. that's due to some... Not unfortunate, but like the, the balance of forces you get in Silver Tower, obviously from a hero point of view, you're getting a couple of individual hero models and they're all from different factions within order and chaos. So, you know, you're not going to get a force there necessarily. Um, and the villains also are split across destruction and chaos, basically. Mm. So again, not an army there. And even all of the Zinch stuff in that box doesn't have the right set of gear to form Mm. currently kind of standard legal units for specifically acolytes and zangor yeah you get the gaunt summoner model and you get the thaumaturge which are both perfectly valid mm. and i think it's the only way to get the summoner with uh with uh, familiars which is a specific version of that character but um yeah silver tower is, is not a good pick from a my first army mm. no. basis whereas i i can see that uh, Prospero is at least into 30k and then if you want to fudge it a bit 40k mm. um, although you do have to fudge it a bit and uh, but yeah like, again it depends what your kind of long term goal is I think but yeah but nonetheless uh, our next question comes from Alexander Radovich who writes how long before we get a hipster hammer versus miniatures monthly battle report <laughs> that'd be awesome that would be awesome and actually probably not out of the question so hipster hammer if you're not aware is a, a warhammer blog run by kieran gillen and matt sherrett mm. um some pretty cool like they've both written some pretty cool things for that and they do battle reports and things sort of infrequent um but um both are friends i was at matt's wedding not too rec- not too long ago mm. Um, and Matt and I, as Matt of Hips Hammer and I are going to a, that event in Cardiff that I keep talking about, I'm going to with Matt. And I'm actually part of the sort of informally part of the Hips Hammer team for an event in Cambridge in October, I think. Mm. So I'm definitely going to be playing a bunch with them. Um, and I think it's a short step from there to a two on two at some point. Yeah, a friendly contest. Indeed. That'd be great. Ideally. It would probably actually end up two on two, but not in the even division because Kieran's a chaos player and Matt mm. is an order player. Oh, right. So it would make quite a lot more sense to I do team with Matt. Yeah. Bring my stormcast. Yeah, his, his, um, free, his, uh, wanderers. And, uh, and, wanderers. Yeah. Awesome. and Kieran's yeah. kind of corn and Skaven and my each. Like that, that would be the way around to do it. I really but, wanted to get some wanderers because they're, um, basically what the wood elves have become in AOS incarnation and wood elves were my, my dudes back in yeah, the day. Yeah. And I, I really miss them in a lot of ways actually. Um, and yeah, the, thinking about like liking fluid armies and kind of yeah. responsive armies. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And uh, 
it was an amazing range when I was uh, I used to play uh, the Wood Elf range because it had kind of it had dryads but also had like rank rank units with, with um, your archers and it also had war dancers who were really really exciting miniatures mm. really well posed considering they were metal and the technology available at the time really great models um that with lots of opportunities for freehand lots of tattoos the, their whole thing was that they were just like tripped out uh mad dancing warriors who could vault over units or just hypnotize them with their sweet moves on yeah, the also like fantasy harlequins yeah yeah for sure um and like i i do i really miss that stuff in aos actually. i just realized something what harlequins are the wood elves of 40k <gasps> hard to paint fast yeah come good, out of nowhere good at range but neither dark elves nor high elves <gasps> somewhere in the middle between the two of them gw secrets revealed shit that doesn't hold up beyond a certain point no it's not anyway. <laughs> uh yeah to, to, to an extent um the uh wanderers uh have some cool rules but mm. their pointing is a bit mad mm. and uh there's they have some amazing units as well they have like these wild riders riding stags that are sort of prancing uh really beautiful models and i'd love to collect an army of them i just don't think their rules are interesting enough or necessarily good enough to just yeah but i might plug some in i mean i plug some into my swordcast army with my dry it'd be so cool to see yeah it'd be lovely actually um but yeah so not miles out of the question to be honest like doing some kind of cool crossover thing um just nice to have people around to play warhammer now that i've got a terrain board actually it feels like i want to do warhammer parties yeah yeah like just get people over for a weekend camp in the garden play warhammer on a huge table um my girlfriend knows someone at work who is into it and really wants to play. So we should, we should team up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do it. The big... more the better. Join us. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Our next question comes from Russell who writes, Hi, Chris and Tom. I work in a school as a science technician and I'm setting up a Warhammer club in the new academic year. I'm loving 8th edition 40k and the launch of a new simpler edition seems like a good time to introduce a fresh blood to the hobby. As in STEM subjects, I'm aware of the lack of female uptake, but I'm struggling to come up with ways to address the issue. It feels like GW's marketing, existing stereotypes, and the setting itself are working against me. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Just the nature of the hobby or something we can do more on? Love the pod and seeing your painting progress photos, Russell. Hmm. Um, yeah, it feels like a, like, I'm not sure um, who pointed this out. When I saw this online, um, but it seems like it was something that I think came up with GW during the sessions at Warhammer Fest, where they said that it's something they wanted to address, but because they're, as in having more, a more diverse universe and having more diverse forces and, and, and so on. Mm. But because their pipeline is so long, like often two, the models were receiving now were conceived and designed two or three years ago, mm. um, sort of, ideas that people were like yeah let's let's commit to this in 2015 we'll probably won't see till next year mm. if that makes sense yeah uh not that that's an excuse necessarily but it feels like the longer longer the more time that passes the the better this is gonna get i think sort of seeing some some parts of that around the fringe of the the hobby like um <coughs> the fact that the stormcast fiction well the fiction includes female stormcast and now the the game is getting around to it in through Shadespire is is progress. Yeah, the um the latest book that was has just come out um called Plague Garden has loads of um female Stormcast characters right. and stuff. So they're they're really pushing pushing that into fiction and actually committing to it mm. now. Um it feels like they're pushing it in all of the places that aren't 
actual model Models. kits that take mm. years to commit, which is the thing they need to commit to, I think. Like, mm. it's a similar, like, I'd like to, like, this, this precedent going a long way back in the 40k fiction for female Imperial Guard. Imperial Guard does not discriminate at all. Yeah, it's yeah. just bodies for the infinite war grinder, as far as anyone's concerned, mm. um, which is grim, but nonetheless. Um, but obviously, like, the kits are really slow to pick that up. Like, always, it always jumps out to me. There's, um, the, the Warhammer 40k Space Marine video game, which I finally played, <laughs> yeah. um, on your recommendation, Tom. <laughs> right. Um, like, the first, like, guards commander you meet in that is, uh, like, oh, is a woman, and mm-hmm. she, she's, like, you know, one of the first sort of non-Space Marine human voices in the story, and that's great. And actually, the books do that a lot, but it makes it more obvious to me that those models don't exist, if you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, the Horus Heresy books, um, often seem to like fill their civilian roles with female characters because the fiction is being constructed in a way where there are no female space marines mm. so like when the sort of the you see the rem- remembrances and all of the humans that are attached to the space marines like lots of them are what's the most important characters women because it seems to be the only way those authors could find to get yeah. them into the fiction mm. and that's that's uh kind of a shit thing that's been slow to materialize in the game mm. like the, the moving the sisters of silence out of 30k back lore and into the active game as a, a sort of fleshed out faction is progress yeah um sisters of battle as a full faction would be would be progress but again it's it's you know it's a tricky mm. thing I, I think i mean the this is just like a, a huge ship that turns very slowly basically like um, it would help if GW had those models and I'm sure that they're in the pipe somewhere and that they came out and kind of t- turned the universe to more of a inclusive place um, but in a 40k way right everyone's still dying horribly and everyone's yeah still- <laughs> we talked about this a little bit last week like the 40k setting is, hor- is horrible <laughs> um, in a its grimness only makes sense in a kind of with a very sort of specific sort of cynicism in mind like you know what i mean it's it's an extremely pessimistic view of what the future could be mm. in a way that amplifies like every form of awful prejudice and persecution and hardship you can imagine all at once for the purpose of horror basically it's a horror setting yeah 40k ultimately despite the kind of you know, there's always a sort of lurking um, unhappiness under every victory in that setting. And it's, you know, I think I think they absolutely can and should do more to rationalize that with its diversity issue. Um, it is a tricky one because it's an explicitly like xenophobic, sexist universe yeah. like the and that is not a pleasant thing to spend time in and i think 40k actually has a sort of an interesting an unreconciled relationship with that in some ways like you the game sort of half wants to celebrate the glories of the the imperium and, and what it means to be a, a proud space marine warrior and also has tons of fiction about how fucking awful that is yeah. that is that is very knowing about how awful that is mm. and it's an interesting like it actually never reconciles those two things. It's one thing I think I probably find fascinating about it, mm. but from a kind of like, what is the, the thing I would contrast it with is something like, uh, for example, the Marvel universe, which I think absolutely benefits from everything it has done to become a sort of a, a, a more inclusive and um, 
representative space because it is supposed to be a sort of to an to a greater or lesser extent a sort of a utopian fiction where superheroes are around to help everybody mm. and those superheroes need to represent everybody. Warhammer forty thousand is explicitly a fucking terrible place you'd <laughs> never ever ever want to live. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it might be that sort of maintaining that while also respecting its diversity issues more might be making it a lesser good place. Mm. You know what I mean? Just like accepting that this is a horror setting. And this is the worst thing that could happen to humanity, basically. Mm. And there are no glories in it. And there are no, mm. like, great space marine heroes. There's just different tiers of awful, like, imperialist, fascist war machine grinding humanity to dust forever. Yeah. Cheery thought. Yeah. Uh, but I think um, the problem goes way beyond Games Workshop and anything they do. True. I think that the problem um, described in the question, actually, is more about wider cultural perceptions of wargaming as a community or, mm. you know, that type of board gaming as a community, um, which is very hard to shift or change. Uh, and maybe it, do, it maybe does come from the source material eventually. Maybe a shift in the models and a shift in, you know, the, the setting will in, in a decade or so change things. But, it, you know, yeah. you can't manufacture these things. And it's, 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 it's also very, it's also not difficult but wrong to presume that different, that, you know, changing one thing or, or changing you know one approach to the the game or the setting or or the hobby in general will suddenly draw in a new audience because mm. everyone wants different things um from it it feels like offering more experiences with the same set of stuff will bring in more people generally so i think i wouldn't say that the push towards this sort of like form of open play or narrative play and things like that that's happening the a the thing typified by age of sigmar is like moving away from the super technical wargaming side of things towards more of a kind of hobby um storytelling sort of creative form of play i don't think that is specifically useful as a tool to bring more women into the hobby i think it is specifically useful as a tool to bring more, more people into mm. the hobby i think it's what's brought me back into the hobby absolutely like i'm not really interested in the you know what i previously would have thought was like quite a you know, an intimidating community full of people who are likely to be very pedantic about rules and that kind of thing is opened yeah. up as a sort of creative thing. Um, accessibility in that regard, I think, has benefits across the board, not just in terms of a spe any any given form of diversity, but just diversity in general, like in terms of getting more people into it. Hmm. So I would push the narrative aspect, but not with the specific eye to bring more women into the hobby, just with a view to bringing more, more people. people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Next question comes from Simon, who writes, Hello, Chris and Tom. Questions for the questions, God, and four exclamation marks. <laughs> I was busy filing away mold lines on my plague marines when a couple of thoughts occurred. Does fun exist in 40k lore, or is it heresy? Are citizens allowed to play football, or is worshipping the emperor and making munitions all the fun they ever need? My other thought was when I noticed the Lord of Contagion has his stomach, st stomach sack pinned to his armour. Did he trip over his own entrails one too many times, or is it for aesthetics? Here, lads, check out my necrosis. And so on to my question. What's your favourite, most absurd detail you've seen on a model? Thanks for all the wonderful podding you guys have done over the years, and shout out to the Discord community for all the tips, encouragement, and just being nice people. Simon Curly on Discord. Yep, always go push our lovely Discord community. We should. It's actually our busiest chat room, probably. More table talk, yeah, yeah probably. Yeah, sure. um, people are changing tips, showing, you know, putting, posting work in pro progress uh, pics. Talking about what to buy next, what they think of the Reavers. <laughs> Lots of split opinions there, mm. as we talked about earlier. Um, yeah, there's a really, really awesome community of cool people. Uh, I suspect there is no fun in 
There's no fun in Warhammer, really. There's not an ambiguous fun. Like, the closest you might get something like Blood Bowl. Blood Bowl was to the original Warhammer world. <laughs> right. But even that is like, it's a sport where people get murdered. Yeah, the, I, I expect there's a lot of blood sport in the, uh, you know, in, in hive cities and that kind of thing. There's lots of fight clubs, lots of that kind of thing. Um, where, you know, some people might take some fleety entertainment out of it, but ultimately it's people inflicting pain upon each other. That seems like a very, yeah, I feel like, like you can't really understand where any of the games workshop is going without that without like kind of getting 2000 ad hmm. where like everything is terrible <laughs> right like to continue from the last question to an yes, extent yes. no everything, everything is, is terrible. really awful yeah uh, the um the sort of glimmers of uh fun that you get from the books or i've gotten from the book so far is like space marines fighting one another in like sparring cages which are these like, bulletproof but don't they often like silos. get a bit frustrated and just rip the arms off some servitors or but something? that's that's the fun they get right it's uh, it's mostly actually when they challenge people from so in the horus heresy especially they love challenging people from other chapters and they'll go into the joining chamber and it's the thrill of battle that actually excites them and they, they have this fleeting sort of you know five minute bout incredible skill on show and one of them bests the other and and that's that's the that's the pleasure they get and then occasionally in the middle of like a dreadful scenario on some alien planet where um bugs with you know arms that can slice through power armor like butter uh one of them will think oh this is a good fight and that's their three seconds of pleasure for their <laughs> yeah, entire I thinking, lifetime <laughs> i think about there's a bit in flight of the eisenstein where two death guard pre-corruption death guard are playing chess <laughs> and they're all kind of getting into it and it's like oh the young rookie is built beat the old wolf you know like mm. and this kind of thing and then, like, literally, like, 20 minutes later, that old rookie or the, the young rookie is being crushed inside his armor due to the chaos-enhanced screaming of an unfathomable witch woman <laughs> as his entrails and gore is splattered over the face of someone he beat at chess only two hours earlier. <laughs> and that person looks at him and goes, he's never playing chess again. <laughs> and that's what that's. And what it's like, and then it's sort of like a grim smirk, like, well, <laughs> I didn't get crushed. Um... <laughs> Like, you know, the, um, the very, very good, uh, announcement CGI trailer for Dawn of War 3. The yeah. Video game, yeah. Which just ends with a, yeah. a space marine smiling as he is crushed yeah. by a chainsword bigger than a house. Yes. Uh, he, <laughs> that's, that's fun. So in, he in closes his eyes millennium. and smiles because glory in the death, glory of death in the service to the emperor is the only pleasure that you can expect as a human in the Imperium. Yeah. Which is why you join chaos. Exactly. And even that's not really fun. Not great. No. Maybe Slanesh, though. Not really. No. No. Because it's like, you know, you might go... Fun, oh, but too much. Yeah, it's too much fun. Too much fun. Therefore, Cause you tentacles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've turned into a big deer snake thing with that's a long like, snoot. Yeah, those horses are weird. Them horses are weird. Get uh, a really... The weirdest chariot in the whole game... Uh, in comes the in the start collecting <laughs> box for Sarnesh in AOS. That thing, actually, Insane. that thing might be more work than the looks like it. Same the chariot. It's one, like yeah, four yeah. different cavalry units attached to. A Why are there so many horses? It's so bad. Yeah, it's the snoot horses. I forgot what they're actually called. Yeah. Seekers, seekers, seekers. Mm. Not what they're seeking. Good time. <laughs> <laughs> at least, they're, um, at least they're striving for fun. At least they're kind of trying to yeah well i mean zine represents it, hope but the hope is like i hope i don't have to make bullets forever and then inevitably be killed when one explodes well yeah and then you get to turn into feathers congratulations <laughs> it's a shit place to live it's bad it's bad um either. the other part of this question was what's the favorite slash most absurd detail you've seen on a model mm, which is a really a good, good question. question yeah needs a little bit more thought maybe yeah um, i'm trying to recall actually i'm trying to recall everything i've painted 
Yeah, there's um, one of my favorite details on a model, and it's really subtle. Is there's a lot of this, um, and this is a lot of zinch stuff. A lot of whoever does a lot of the zinch miniatures, um, or the team that does the zinch miniatures, they're brilliant at getting the symbology of zinch into the models in cool ways. So, mm-hmm. a really obvious example is on the 30k Armin's right shin pad. Uh, both of his, all of his armor is kind of like covered in these kind of like Prospero runes, like sort of Thousand Suns runes and sigils and things. And his right shin pad, just one of them is the Zeech symbol. Hmm. And it's just one among many. And it's this great little detail that says, this person is engraving significant symbols in his bot on it, on him, in his armor and kind of on his person. And he has no idea what that one actually means yet. Yeah. And you know I mean, it's almost like a little creeping hmm. warning. Yeah, that's nice. When I painted my arm and I have it glowing, it's the only symbol on his arm that's glowing. And it's just the one that's about to like kick mm. in. Um, there's also like, I noticed this, this is a mad thing. Um, the change thing, when I did the model this week, it's pulling this fireball into being with its, with, with three of its arms. Mm. And the way it's pulling it, it's pulled it into the zinch symbol. Like it's, it's, oh, nice. Like it's a, like a, like cause the zinch symbol is sort of like a kind of curving B with like a kind of, it's almost like a ball with a fine flame coming out of the top of it. Yeah, yeah. Call back from earlier. Um, so those are really cool little things you pick up on and go, Oh shit. That's like, that's just that little extra level of, um, mm. yeah. Uh, this makes me think of the relictor's scepter, which is actually just like, a. <laughs> as some, some people hold up banners in combat. Mm. Um, but the Re- Lord relictor has like a, a reliquary with an actual skeleton of someone holding a broadsword as though they're interred in, you know, in death. Um, and that's, he just carries that around with him. Um, but the, the skeleton is the size of a normal human. It's not stormcast sized. So it's almost, it's, it kind of implies a, a greater story to the Lord Relictor and that this could have been a person they knew in life or something or that came to mean something to them, not mm. just simply, uh, just a, a, a body he found. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, um, especially the way that the, um, the skeleton is holding the broadsword, which is very kind of, um, ancient burial style. Like it, it feels like he's carrying around a body from the world that was, or from a different era, whenever mm. he was reforged from. And yeah, it implies a lot about the character and kind of gives you hooks to create your own stories for that relictor, which, mm. you know, that's a great model. Yeah, that's super cool. Our next question comes from Tom Hatfield. Hmm. Huh. Good friend of both of ours, former mm. flatmate of both of ours. Hello, Tom. Hi, Tom. Um, hey, guys, love the podcast. Just wanted to ask a simple setup that I'm sure will not lead to a complex law discussion. You've talked about your favorite Space Marine chapters and Chaos Gods, but who are your favorite Xenos? Xenos. Mm, that's a good question, Tom. That's a good question. Um, the Tau are really interesting. Yeah. Um, they're as close as you, at, at a glance, as close as you, you might come to some sort of good guy or... Yeah. But not really. <laughs> well, this is an interesting thing. When they were conceived, they were conceived as like, what if there were good guys in 40k? Right. But they were like thousands of years behind everybody else. Hmm. Um, so their backstory is that, if you're not aware, that the Tau were discovered by the Imperium during the Great Crusade, so 10,000 years ago, hmm. as of Warhammer 40,000. And um, they were basically about the same technological level as we are now they were like approaching their space age like starting to make a kind of go of it um and they were determined to be not 
you know, you couldn't bring them to compliance. They were too advanced to be left alone. So they were signaled for exterminatus, just wipe them out. Hmm. However, then a huge warp storm hid their homeworld from the Imperium. And then the heresy kicked off. And so the Imperium left them alone. And then 10,000 years later, they emerged as one of the most technologically advanced races in the galaxy because they've progressed for 10,000 years without the hyper-religious, <laughs> crazy yeah. Um, yeah. strictures of the Imperium. And initially, there was a sort of an ambiguous kind of like, we're the good guys, but we're completely out of our depth mm. sort of sense to them. And then a little bit later, there was a sense, there was a desire, I think, to sort of grim dark them a little bit. Yeah. So parts of their the sort of the their rigid caste system in their society became a bigger thing and their sort of uh like monomaniacal sense of the greater good that governs not only how they treat their own people but the kind of races that they implicitly subjugate yeah they became a thing they become their own version of the imperium really because yeah um they the, i mean when the imperium encounters alien races they just kill them um but when the Tau encounter them, they try and subsume them, basically. They try mm. and just eat them, <laughs> culturally, in a way that's more insidious and horrible in its own way. Yeah, it's um, a toss-up, which is worse. Yeah, so they, they, for example, they might encounter a new species and then control its breeding with advanced viruses uh, in order to persuade them to join. And then they would hold them in a semi-enslavement situation, like that entire species, just to use them for combat purposes. So they're like fiercely utilitarian from that they just they only care about the the outcome um and they sort of like their values are they better than the imperium like is it better to be enslaved or just to die to, to an exterminatus attack you know that's the the question they pose yeah that's that's pure 40k thinking <laughs> like, correct yeah. which are these two fucking terrible apocalypse scenarios would you, would you prefer um yeah um yeah like i like like i think Tower designs stand out really nicely. Mm. I think, um, so actually it occurs to me, our, our next question, uh, which is from Andre is, would either of you ever collect, consider collecting one of the alien armies? If so, which one would you pick? Which it feels like we can yeah. fall into this discussion, both on the law side and also on the collecting side. Yeah, yeah, sure. Tower models are great. Yeah. Really like them. Mm. Um, the sort of the clean lines and sort of like anime inspired sure. robots and things yeah, are super yeah. cool. That kind of Gundam influence. Yeah, I really, I like the Tyranids hmm. as well. Like, they seem like they'd be fun to... They're really fun to paint. Fun to paint. Similar kind of gribbly, <laughs> likes a wash kind of thing. I like I like Gene Steel Occults as a concept, mm. um, which mesh sort of... I think, so the weakness of Tyranids. So I think on a broad sense, the weakness of the alien races in 40k is the degree to which they superficially overlap with other things, all of them. So, um, where, I mean, obviously, like, because obviously everyone's seen Touchstones and Space Marines, uh, sorry, Space Marines and, and sort of Space Troopers from Earth in things. But the Imperium, the Imperium of Man as it exists in 40k is quite a specific thing. Like the notion of the kind of like Byzantine Empire slash Catholic Church mm. in space as a kind of fascist, like, um authoritarian paranoid war machine is, is very specific cult. to Warhammer 40,000. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Gundam robots in space is, is not as specific to them. I think they've made the Tau their own, mm. but they feel like it's Gundam robots in space. Like if you had to describe them quickly, yeah. Tyranids are the Xenomorph mm. from aliens in a billion different forms. Yeah. Um, orcs are orcs. Uh, Necrons are undead. 
Um, what other Xenos do we have? Well, the Eldar, the Eldar the elves, like yeah, you know what I mean. Like the, it's where the the fantasy feel is sort of is felt. I think yeah. most keenly in the other ones. Like I really like loads of things, but all of them. Yeah, and it's just that I think it's also where I think the fiction has to work hardest to feel different. Because mm. if Eldar get too sort of spiritually, or if you don't dig enough into the details. You could, you would be forgiven for going space elves, mm. right? Um, with that said, I think my choice for this is probably Eldar, and specifically either Dark Eldar, Drakari, or Holoquins, right? Or even the Holoquins Inari. Awesome. Like Holo- Holoquins are great. Yeah. I really love Holoquins as a concept. That whole idea of a battle just being like a performance that plays out a part of Eldar a way of them reenacting their own history. Like, yeah, that's very, very and telling awesome. a lesson to their own people. Yeah, like yeah. I love that about them like and the solitaire is probably is just the possibly the coolest the, character the coolest uh, like yeah yeah so the solitaire if you're not aware is a is an elder harlequin that ends up as a pariah to their own person or their own people on purpose because their job is to play the role of slanesh in the drama of the elder mm. and in order to do that they have to be the ultimate outsider but because for 40k reasons this also makes them the kind of the world like the galaxy's greatest assassin Mm. like they have some amazing rules in the game which allow them to just basically move the entire battlefield if they want to and they can completely ignore enemy units when zooming into a character and one of my favorite pieces of harlequin art that i looked at a lot when i was doing my harlequins for shadow war is of like it's supposed to be like a like a first person view of like an imperial commissar or something looking over and seeing that the solitaire coming for them and it's just this sort of incredibly ornate but calm figure just sort of walking through bullets mm. like walking through tracer fire like not even thinking about it not dodging or weaving just striding through it with a single-minded purpose just to end them and move on yeah which is yeah it's just like there's awesome. so much stuff about them that's absolutely rad mm. really really like that and I like, I mean, I like the, I like the, given, given how initially obvious the sort of high elf, dark elf touchstones are with Eldar and dark Eldar. I really like the inversion that dark Eldar are the true Eldar mm. and Eldar are something like, or a kind of weird perversion of what the Eldar were when they felt. If you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. the other way around to the way people expect it. Mm. Like, Dark Elder are a lot closer to what the Elder were like when they were, uh, when they were the species. Because uh, hedonistic, just right yeah. before Sarnesh was born out of the hedonism of, of that um, society. The, like, Dark Elder the Eldar are the place. kind of the weird Puritans in the mm. Mayflower that left the hedonistic culture to found a new society. And the craft worlds are those sort of, like, ex- you know, like escape pods from a doom a society that doomed itself through its hedonism yeah but still the majority of that society was defined by the kinds of things that are represented by the dark eldar which Mm. is you know the other way of seeing it like it's not like obviously they fell but it's not like a small fallen sect and the kind of glittering haughty noble whole it's more like the kind of puritanical dropout and the survivors of flagellant survivors of the uh, yeah yeah perhaps yeah, the Drakari are awesome, actually. They, um, their deal is they need to stave off Slanesh by generating pain a lot of the time. <coughs> um, and they are the more kind of sensual, more like bodily connected of the two forces. Um, 
but they're also they've become a kind of gangster uh nightmare of yeah. society <laughs> where so Kamara was just um made of various different kind of uh Drukari sects who would easily assassinate, eat, kill, torture each other. Um and you belong to one of those and that's your kind of house and that's your entire identity. Um, and they rather than just kind of storing spirits and spirit stones in the very kind of uh almost the Eldar put their people into a kind of stillborn situation where they're in these stones and they just act as kind of batteries a lot of the time for other people. They're plugged into war machines to kind of come back. But do they really come back? Like that that's their mm. kind of deal. Whereas the Drukhari, like if um a dark Eldar is killed on the field of battle, uh they could take his finger, take it back to the homeworld, give it to a homunculus, and they can regrow that person from just the a, a strip of flesh basically so they're much more about the body they're much more about like yeah uh, um which is much more interesting take i think than the elder perhaps who are about the spirits aren't they but, they're but, the two but the, the sort of the that relationship is super interesting yeah it's really like, cool yeah like the sort of and the fact that their um philosophy and sort of spirituality sits operates on the same basic principles as the imperium hmm. um but is a completely different set like the Eldar as are as in you know their society is as much a response to the Chaos Gods as mm. the Imperium is. Oh yeah, yeah. But it's a completely different society, mm. and that's a you know really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting what they've done with the Inari, who are the kind of death cult Eldar, mm. the, the new sort of form of Eldar that exists for Eighth Edition, um, because they've kind of gone all in on like the Wraith aspect of old Eldar, mm. where so the Wraith Guard and the Wraith lords and the wraith knights like apparently that was hugely divisive for Eldar societies the idea of bringing back the dead in that way um their reaction to the dreadnought thing that imperium does is that a lot of them despise it and they think it's not heresy but they think it's disrespectful to the souls to make them fighting machines and others obviously say well the, the alternative is slanesh and ultimate damnation and this is actually you know a way of keeping us alive though we're a dying race um, and then they've kind of, they've taken the Wraith concept and made it into a fully forged kind of, they're giving them an avatar of death now that actually, uh, death fuels their units. It gives them extra attacks, it gives them extra rounds of combat and stuff in the middle of a game. And they've fleshed that out into its own, um, new philosophy for the Eldar and what they, what, a new way to escape Slanesh, which is incredibly self-destructive, <laughs> uh, considering they're such a small race as well. It's a really interesting thing to do with them. Mm. They've really just magnified one aspect of, yeah, I feel like I want to say that, that I think the Xenos races have to do more to escape their fantasy associations. Mm. I think they do or do a lot. Yeah. Like, I think actually the Eldar have gotten the furthest. Mm. Um, particularly in the, I think the Eldar are the most effectively tied into the sort of cosmology of the Warhammer 40k universe. They're an interesting reflection to the Imperium, actually. Because yeah. they do deal with the same shit in their own ways. It's interesting. One thing that's very inconsistently applied in Warhammer generally is how the Chaos Gods relate to races that aren't human. Mm. Like you don't really see, like chaos-aligned elves in, or like elves with an A, in in Age of Sigmar or Warhammer Fantasy Battle. No, not yet. Um, like Marathi is an exception on the Dark Elf side, mm. um, and it obviously seems weird that the Dark Elves have a blood god called Cain, mm. as opposed to the blood god called Corn, and they're definitely not the same. <laughs> Shut up. Um, like, but nonetheless, right? Like, there's that sort of. It almost sometimes feels like an oversight that mm. like. 
Obviously, Chaos Dwarves exist, but they're going to get pushed to the edges of the fiction. You don't see them very often. No, they're pretty much erased at this stage. Yeah, they? pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's, like sometimes it feels like the fiction can, can feel like chaos is a human phenomena, mm-hmm. and every other faction or race has its own deal. Yeah, and it feels like the 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 more the setting becomes more interesting when everyone is just reacting to the same set of fundamental universal principles differently. In their own like, cultural it ways, it will be right? interesting if they ever. So actually, apparently, according to think to the new episode. of New issue of White Dwarf. I think the new Tau novel, the Commander Farsight novel, actually deals with the Tau's reaction to chaos a little bit, mm. given that the rift has split the galaxy, which is something they need to build into that fiction. Right? The rift has like, swallowed up an entire like division of Tau that yeah. just vanished into it. So that's an interesting, like, what happens now. Not, not that they should do chaos Tau necessarily, no, no. but like, they need to figure out where do they fit? Hmm. Like, what, do, what characteristics of the Tau people, given that chaos gods feed off mortal emotion? Hmm. What do the specifics, what does, what did the Tau add to that? The mm-hmm. Eldar gave Slanesh life and humans have been driving Zinch and Korn and Nurgle and Slanesh forever, basically. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like everyone sort of needs to be part of it. Like there's a bit in the, in the new, in the new book where apparently Korn has just stolen a hive fleet. Yes. Like one yep. of Korn's bloodthirsters, the one that doesn't like the blood angels mm-hmm. has just, nicked a high fleet or killed an entire high fleet or stolen it like there's it's unclear but i find that really interesting as a like i want those angles to be pulled at more like mm. i want to know what does nurgle make of the tyranids mm. right yeah. like the consuming force that is also a form of corruption but in different ways like, you know what i mean like yeah and why and like why is corn not interested in orcs as a kind yeah. of rampaging army you know what is it about them that doesn't fit that like they've got their own gods are, are they uh Gorgamort chaos gods actually really you mm. know that th- their the passions of their race have created these forces that seems to be how chaos gods come to be right yeah, yeah. is that the um is Gorgamort an expression of corn mm. that'd be a really interesting twist like, yeah that actually he's running that show yeah corn's running that show you just don't it's, know it's their understanding of corn yeah but that would be one way mm. of like yeah. but they see different face whatever face they need to see to yeah believe and engage with it right hmm these are all interesting questions, but like mm. they, they seem like they laid lurk at the fringes of it a little bit without really getting. Stressed. Yeah, I think the the move in Eighth Edition is going to be like Chaos Space Marines versus Space Marines for a while, but I can't wait to see them move to back, go back over those races, go back over the Trakari, yeah, and, and the Eldar and, and the Orcs especially because they are desperately in need of model update. Um, and I'd love to see what they do with their. I'd love to see, deal, like, given how beautiful the Iron Jaws models are for yeah, AOS, whatever yeah, they yeah. do with 40k Orcs is going to be amazing. Do those guns job done actually yeah you're completely right <laughs> yeah. they're fantastic fantastic models just pretend the more crusher is a tank or <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. Done. so actually we don't actually answer the question which is if you were to collect a xenos race which oh, would yeah. you actually collect Ooh. it would be held off me i love those models i think mm. i think even the really old models are still quite beautiful and i love that organic armor design It'd be a really nice break from the imperial lines and the uh, everything else I paint really. Yeah, Harlequins for me. Mm, Whenever nice. I'd feel like never just. <laughs> That's a hard project, man. Deeper, deeper into painting Prit Jail. Like, yeah. I'm going to do my Space Marines yellow and my Zinch gribbly. <laughs> um, okay, Stephen writes Dear Crate and Crowbar Miniatures Monthly, a recent discussion on the Crate and Crowbar Miniatures Monthly spin off podcast, The Crate and Crowbar, prompted me to start watching Columbo again. <laughs> my internet 
saturated brain normally wouldn't be able to concentrate on a full 90 minutes of slow-moving television, but I found it to be the perfect accompaniment to go with painting my production line of Dark Eldar Cavalite Warriors. Speaking of which, hmm. what media or other activities do you like to enjoy while painting your minis? Love, Steve. Oh, and one more thing, Chris. What list did you fly at the European Championships? Hmm. Presumably for X-Wing, because well, I didn't do a European Championship or anything else. Hmm. Uh, so answer so the second bit first. Um, I flew a list I've been running for a very, very long time, which is a... It's a variant. It's a Decimator Ace variant, which is a big Imperial ship um, plus Ace, but with Marek Steel and a Tie Defender, who you very, very rarely see. Oh, nice! But uh, Marek Steel was the protagonist of the Tie Fighter games, mm. and he's specifically useful for his pilot skill value. Where getting to nine is an important threshold. I'm just talking now, but also very good in a uh, in a meta that makes ion control, where you can shut ships down, mm. very useful. So a Tie D ion cannon. Marek Steel with Rear Admiral Chirino, Palpatine, and Rebel Captive, and that's my list. You got Palp, Palp on the Decimator? Yeah. Oh. Palp on Decimator is the... So Palp, nice. Palpatine got nerfed quite substantially, but on a Decimator, it still makes sense. Hmm. Um, it was nice. Um, that obviously won't mean anything to anyone who's an X-Wing player. It's not... Um, it's a known archetype, but I've never seen anyone else running the variant of the archetype who didn't borrow it from me <laughs> at a Bristol tournament, right. as far as I can tell. Um, I've won a lot with it. Like, it's been my store champ winning thing for a while. Um, I'm probably still going to run it for ages. But it was nice because, one, it gets comments that it's something slightly different. And just once, this is a tiny, tiny thing. But, so my the start of my tournament went pretty well. I was, it was a nine-round thing, and I went, I was five and two at a certain point, which is obviously doing pretty well. Like, five wins, two losses. Um, and at that point, and then I then didn't bomb out a bit, but I had a bit of a rough run after that and went to 6-3 in the end, or 5-4, 6-3, I think. But when I was 5-2, one guy posted in the official stream Twitch chat, I just heard a guy went, uh, has gone 5-2 with Marek Steele. Mm. No one ever see that, so that was a neat. No, that's awesome. That was nice to see in the chat. Someone, someone sent me a screen grab of that, and I was like, oh. Yeah, just noticed the yeah. quirky Random internet man noticed me. Really like, uh, I love that decimates model, and I love the way it plays the game. Actually, it lo- yeah, it's lovely. It's it's a it's an people think it's a either a bad ship or a easy ship, and it is neither of those things. I've never been. Yeah, it's the only ship I feel like I know inside out in that mm. game is the decimate. Played a really fun game against uh, Tom Hatfield, earlier question asker, mm. um, where his flaming decimator just hunted down. <laughs> um, it wasn't like a. A competitive game at all but you know it created a very cool image of how the empire hunt down and yeah funnily enough to... that model got me into x-wing hmm. and is therefore the reason i'm into warhammer now well and the reason for that is the decimator we mentioned this earlier was was uh, a ship from star wars galaxies because uh you know a fun thing about star wars is the Empire doesn't really have any ships of it, or didn't really have any ships of like a Millennium Falcon size. Every Imperial ship is either a Star Destroyer or a TIE Fighter. It's either massive or tiny. And from a video game designer's perspective, that creates a problem because you have three different types of pilot in that game. You have the Rebels and the Scum and all the villain, the Rebels, Independent, Spaces, and Empire. And Empire don't really make sense as independent operators. You're talking about swarms of TIE pilots or staff, like Star Destroyer commanders, not people with independent things so they had to kind of create a new set of tie mm. vessels to kind of make sense at that level like the aggressor um but also the decimator which was invented as a kind of mid-level gunboat 
like kind of what yeah. is the imperial like thing at that it's size a shotgun isn't it it's amazing yeah it's a it's a sort of it's a kind of brawler gunship mm. um with basically no defenses and huge firepower and yeah i love it to pieces but like i hadn't seen that ship or even like i had one in star wars galaxies and it was a top level imperial pilot tier reward you could decorate the inside of it how you wanted like a falcon oh, like, cool. basically lived in that thing like a flying house loved it to pieces mm. and when that game died i never saw it again and then i was in a game shop at orcs nest in london which is a sort of tabletop game shop. i was there to buy a new Monero supplement actually and i saw that there was this x-wing miniatures game thing which is interesting but also like holy shit is that a decimator like yeah like how the fuck does that exist like it's like the last thing in the world like i would have bought a model of that thing regardless of there being a game attached to it like it was such a kind of meaningful thing, right? teenager role-playing game life that yeah and so i bought that like so i got well i went and then investigated the game then got into the game and then so on so mm. that's one of the reasons i keep running the estimator actually is because it's of of um oh, sentimental awesome. value yes that's why i will keep trying to get it to top tables and actually a couple of estimators did make it to top tables at euros but yeah Hmm. Talk more about the specifics of why they are and aren't suited to the top meta in a different podcast where I ramble about the X-Wing meta game. <laughs> but the other half of the question um, was things to watch while you paint or do your hobby bits. Oh, yeah. Ooh, um, I always pick up the Warhammer Live uh, Twitch channel. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Uh, which is perfect kind of background painting fodder. Um, I think you learn a lot about playing the game from just having it on in the background and hearing what units can do. Yeah. And just learning what can happen in the game, like what sort of things to expect, like what a, a deep strike looks like in AOS, what, um, you know, what a cap, what Overwatch looks like in for, new edition 40k. Um, just, it gives you a lot of context and it's almost, you're getting a lot of game knowledge just by absorbing it in the background. And I think the personalities they've got on are, are good and they, they have fun with the game and aren't afraid to kind of be silly with it. Um, while still obviously respecting the law and everything that that company has to do <laughs> yeah, yeah. to preserve the the weight of its IP. So yeah, so I um I watched some gaming streams and Warhammer when it's on. Um, and then for the most part, it's mostly music for me because I find I struggle to watch TV mm. while doing something else. Like I can't really do it. I can watch a stream is slightly different, but like esports broadcaster goes well, but that's a difference outside of my interest. Yeah, it's something you can kind of listen to like you're listening to the football or something like that mm. i find i need to be able to listen to it and i can't i can't just listen to tv i have to watch it right so yeah so the music or a stream of some kind for me um i choose through loads of podcasts i'm like a podcast fiend and i inhale them so i've just got a huge playlist of podcasts that i just put on that stuff you should know that's a good background thing mm. um but you just sort of learn random things i love like just absorbing general knowledge and yeah same so like pip and i um like sometimes we'll just listen to pods in the in the conservatory and I'll paint and she'll be working on one of her projects. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. a nice way to do it. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, in terms of telly, yeah, it's, it is tricky. I think there's there's a whole kind of, there's lots of television that you don't have to watch. Um, so yeah, watch lots of political TV that way. Mm. You just don't I probably something like that would work for me. I struggle yeah. with anything like a drama where I feel like I have to be looking. Yeah. And also I think when you're watching a drama or you're watching a television series that's trying to establish a world so much effort goes into cinematography and actually presenting scenes mm. and getting clothes together that um it's, it seems wrong not to watch it but um politically like started this week um like your question times any questions all that kind of stuff even the moral maze which you know is designed to make you angry <laughs> still <laughs> fun to have on in the background 
Our next question comes from Matt, who writes, Dear Primaris Space Marine and Space Primaris Space Space Marine, I would like to start by sending you a walloping thank you for the wonderful pod, which has become something of an oral highlight for me every month. Well, how nice people are. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, so nice. Um, I'm always particularly excited when it drops in time to accompany me on a chilly and damp midwinter early morning run here in Melbourne. This past week has involved the enjoyable, question mark, dissonance of running at 6am in the pitch dark in three degrees in the rain while you both complain about it being too hot. Well, <laughs> have we got a treat for you, yeah, Matt, welcome back. it's too f***ing hot. Anyway, as well as wishing to sing your praises, I did have a couple of questions. I've been away from the 40k hobby since 5th edition. This corresponded with my moving away from the UK and away from my gaming group to the other side of the world. However, the new release of 40k has piqued mine and many others' interest. I'm still flitting around the edge of the hobby, slightly holding back on diving into the massive resource and time sink it can be. But on the other hand, shiny new models. So in relation to my absorption in the hobby increasing, I was wondering if either of you listened to any of the hobby pods you would recommend. Don't worry, I pinky promise you will remain my first love. <laughs> You've both mentioned Warhammer TV on the pod as a resource. In fact, we just did. Uh, I was expecting it to be cringeworthy and janky with awkward, drank far too much of the Kool-Aid presentation and was very impressed by its content and presentation. Is there anything you listen to, official or fan-based, that you would recommend? Secondly, as I begin to consider my return to the hobby... How do you both set up your painting slash hobby areas? In Australia, tenants have even fewer protections than in the UK and absolutely do not want to risk paint or adhesive spillages or hobby knife scratches. I also do not have a lot of space to play with. Do, you, do either of you use the paint stations made by Citadel or other companies? If so, are they any good? Finally, last month we had a lovely story about Stuart, the best space wolf in one of your burning Prospero scenarios. <laughs> yeah. Uh, have any of you got certain models who have ended up with nicknames or reputation of running jokes about them? The first Forge World model I ever bought was a Black Templar's Venerable Dreadnought, which is also the first model I really painted to a stun that I was happy with. For reasons I cannot even remotely begin to remember, in my gaming group, this veteran of countless crusades, this hero of the Imperium, who continued to serve the Emperor even in death, became known as Jerry. <laughs> Keep up with the wonderful pod. Thanks for painting little plastic men's everybody, Matt. Uh, yeah, that that last point I think is the beating heart of the hobby for me in a gaming sense it, it is the heroes that emerge along the way yeah it is the the relics as it is the it, the minotaur that hulks out and just obliterates some you know dracoth yeah i have a really ships, specific you know. sense of your relic though weirdly i think it helps mm. from that he's from your he's your um your silver tower character mm. where your best trick is to stand in a doorway and just incinerate everything <laughs> yeah. in the room and be like i've done it i've solved it yeah that relic is awesome um, the, the, the model's so characterful but he's he's got his own personality now he's his own it feels like he's sort of this sort of like like a wandering priest like he just walks quite slowly his low movement value and the fact that whenever yeah. you roll a run roll for him you get like a one yeah he never goes anywhere fast like but he but he zaps things to ash like like in today's amazing. game when you know the the storm, the iron storm cleared and the, you know, the, you know, the, the charging thaumaturge and sort of surging chariot were revealed and the relics just wandered back through the shield line, turned around and incinerated <laughs> yeah. the thaumaturge with lightning. He is a badass. And I think part of it is that I've, I went for black armor for him, completely different to everyone else in the army. I think this is actually quite a cool way of creating these characters where, mm. You, you you can carefully you can change the color scheme a lot and as long as you keep a kind of like the blue and gold motif somewhere on the model it will kind of fit in um in a battle scenario but he's like his whole thing he's called the ash bearer and he's like the way that um uh relics are formed is that they go into this uh strange temple in sigmaron that no one else is allowed into and no one knows what happens to them but they go through these 
strenuous trials of death and they come out with this special armor, which is why they have a three plus save and they move slower than everyone else. But it's because they're like, they have this elite armor on, but his is just like, has baked in ash of dead folk, <laughs> which is why he's black and gray and why he's just kind of this strange rethink, you know, uh, death node in the middle of an otherwise uh, celestial army and i love that contrast i think yeah, that yeah. creates so much character for him i, I think i've found, started to find that emerging i think the thaumaturge is sort of defined almost the way his the fact that he will chase the relic to wherever he goes <laughs> yeah and just kill whatever's opposed. in the way and then die to the relic though yeah, like almost yeah. every time that's a that's a pretty cool story like actually. everything that got in the way of him today died mm. until he hit the relic you know what i mean like just kind of the way it goes but like I'm starting to sort of build up the character of the Sorcerer Lord, who I still think yeah, is the, the guy who doomed yeah. that civilization that we're fighting over. Yeah, yeah. Um, whose job is like I like the idea of the Sorcerer Lord who's been denied the full gift of Zinch mm. and is still being denied it. Yeah, and that's why he sort of like stands at the back and he sort of channels these this demonic energy into other people. But mm. I like I basically like with him, I was like the idea of like the deaf composer, mm. like he can he can write this stuff, but he can't hear it. Like, you know, it's kind of flowing out of him, but no one is ever giving him the power. Like, he's not getting his He's just a medium, right? Yeah. yeah, he's just a medium. And I really like that. Because that fit perfectly today with when he randomly ended up just in, on his own in the corner of the board, mm. unable to see anything three inches away, just casting his own buffs on himself. <laughs> like, well, I'm ready, guys. He's just trying to guys. open his, He's trying to open himself up to his god and trying to get that final blessing, but he's only he's only yeah. like a, a fuse in the in the circuit. Which right? is why the moment months ago when he killed your Celestine on Dracoth just like, with a flood yeah. of like well, well with seven destiny dice from me and mm. a bit of luck and like you know, a huge Hail Mary that didn't do anything to the state of the game but just was a cool moment. Yeah. Like yeah. kinda of meant something because it's like is that was his I mean that could well, he be. thinks Zinch spoke through him, but a very specific Lord of Change spoke through him. Yes. Like, and and that could be the best ever gets for that guy. Like he could be doomed to this mediocrity. Like uh, depending on what you want to do with him, like whether he yeah, wants he's, to he's him. doomed. There's, <laughs> a, there's a, like there's another character who will come along when I do the Magister, who mm. is like going to be worse than him but better at the same time. Like mm. someone who just sort of finds it easier. Mm. Like I kind of like the idea of the rubbish chaos Sorcerer lord who'll be chasing that forever. Yeah, and that kind of fits the game. And the guy comes in and he's actually blessed by Zeech, and no one knows why. Yeah, but that guy's going to be a demon prince eventually. Who's yeah, going to be awesome. like, yeah. like the actual scion mm. of that. And that case, that source lord has to watch. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. So good. You, you have all these aspirations. They don't that doesn't matter. matter. Not favoured by a chaos guard. Yeah, you're doomed. Um, so, other parts of this question. Um, so, other hobby pods we'd recommend. Yeah, um, one of the better ones just shut recently. Um, Healingham was was good. That's like a couple of guys who have been part of the scene for like decades and decades. They've done it all. They um, they've played uh competitively at the highest level um Dan Heenan has and um like uh Wayne Kemp is like a really great hobbyist and paints amazing Skaven armies and stuff. And until like as of like last month I think they they um stopped the pod because of like life commitments and stuff. But I still think it's worth going through their backlog and hearing their chats about um about gaming and hobby, and that, that's that was the one I listened to the most. Yeah, yeah. It was also the one with um, like a really good mic setup, like it sounded professional. Mm. Um, whereas a lot of them are done over Skype and stuff, which I think like is a big problem for podcasts. Yeah, that's why we don't do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, um, I did like. So I, I sort of dropped off the wagon, but only because they got to things that I didn't want spoiled for me. Um, but. Listen to all the Mortal Realms on your recommendation, mm. particularly the early parts of that podcast when they're kind of getting into Age of Sigmar. Yeah. Because they do like not read throughs quite, but like sort of lengthy, quite deep discussions of 
basically the first year of Age of Sigmar's fiction, yep. which I found was helpful for getting me up to speed with it without me kind of having to read through the backlog of the Roundgate novels, which I've read a bunch of now. Mm. Um, I think there's some good fiction mixed in in there, but like a lot of my favorite Age of Sigmar fiction isn't on that critical path of like what literally happened. Yeah. So it's nice to have an easy way of catching up with that. Yeah, and the they, surrounding discussion about the hobby is generally pretty good. Yeah, so. they um they go blow by blow in the book, so you get a lot of plot points and some interesting discussion about what it means for the wider kind of state of uh, meta metaphysical state of the universe. So yeah, that's the, that's the Mortal Realms podcast. I, I didn't mm. listen to them past like there was it was regularly released anyway, but it, I yeah, past a certain point only because they'd gotten to books i was actually reading and i didn't want them to yeah i didn't yeah. want to read their obviously hear their stuff about it before i'd read it so I it's a good way to catch up the wagon but good way to catch up without having to read a lot of books yeah. yeah uh and the other part of this question was um about setting up a kind of responsible hobby space and whether or mm. not we use sort of the citadel trays i think you do don't you or what's that uh, i guess i've hobby got box sort of thing. i've got the hobby box thing which is um a kind of all-in-one storage device and then you the lid turns into a kind of painting space uh, which has worked brilliantly, actually. Um, really pleased with it. Uh, I didn't get some paint on a table recently somehow, and uh, that's on the table forever. <laughs> so uh, a cheap cover for any server you're working on can cost like I don't know five quid in our country, but you know I'm sure that you know very cheap, authentic, readable. Yeah. So what I've done is um, I take a I've got quite a big sort of uh, hobby craft board like knife cutting board thing like the green board with the lines on it that yeah. you see everywhere that one yeah, that, that one thing. in like a3 size like quite big mm. and then have that as a base but use it to pin down like a little basically like blanket of kitchen towel which i replace every now and then mm. and that's useful for two reasons one it means that if i spill something it has to obviously get off the waterproof chopping board which is pretty big mm. and then through the kitchen towel which often gives you time to kind of rescue whatever it is you've spilled yeah it helps that i don't have to move my setup mm. uh, obviously that, that's a huge deal um because it's sort of in a in, in situ in the conservatory um the other thing is that i can sort of pin kitchen towel underneath the board so that it hangs off the edge of the table sort of towards my lap as I'm painting, which means I almost have like a tear-off supply of kitchen towel available right. at any given time for mm. like wiping off brushes in a kind of clean and not going to bump into anything other than me kind of way, Yeah, uh, which is helpful for just cleaning brushes quickly and that kind of thing. Mm. So nice. yeah, that's dead easy as well. Just a chopping board and, or a knife cutting board and a, a roll of kitchen towel will, will protect it pretty well. Right. And just to generally not, doing what i do and occasionally just like batting over a load of dragon off nightshade and having to gather it all up yeah. get a really big cutting board if you're clumsy that's my knock, tip knock and keep everything in the middle the of it yeah you, knock, you can knock over paint and it's only going so far but wash is going everywhere yeah you knock over a wash that's going fucking everywhere yeah um our next question comes from ryland who writes dear mini men monthly just wanted to let you know how much i'm enjoying the new show jesus everyone's so nice i mean nice. jesus in a thank you way like <laughs> Unlike most of the readers who write in, I'm not currently involved in tabletop games, nor do I plan to get back in. I played 40k for a bit back in high school, but mostly preferred the act of assembling, painting, and diorama creation. I fielded a Tyranid's army while my best friend who got me into the hobby did Blood Angels. While I enjoy hearing you talk about and can relate to the specific joys of paintings, I really love your discussions of lore. You've convinced me to start looking for a good 40k book to read, but beyond that, I was wondering if you could recommend some kind of codex or encyclopedia. 
Mm-hmm. My initial introduction to Games Workshop was through the World of Warhammer book, an incredibly colourful tome that I found sandwiched in the hobby section of the bookstore one day when I was young. I obsessed over the book for years, reading and rereading its descriptions of strange lands, dark factions, how they lived and how they fought. Who would write a book like this, I wondered? A fiction almanac to a world without game or movie tie-ins. At no point did the book make mention of the miniatures. It was only years later that I made the connection and realised I had been reading a source book for a tabletop game. I wish there was something like that available now, but I can't imagine it making any financial sense. What would you say would be the best book for catching up on the new world building for Age of Sigmar 40k and 30k? I love the pod. Keep on painting. Bryland. Hmm. Um, it feels like in some ways wikis have stepped in for yeah. this role, like Lexicanum, which is the 40k wiki, and it's not really an AOS one. No. Uh, there obviously is like, not quite enough AOS stuff to really form yeah, a wiki yeah. at this stage. There are some like key characters and stuff, but the there is, well, there is yeah, there is an AOS wiki, but it's it's narrow. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a it's a really good question. Um, it's hard, especially for AOS. I think that that might be a bit of a problem for it because cool pictures, um, cool key art only goes so far. Um, when you want people to be kind of, like becoming absorbed in the entire universe, and mm. to the extent that we are with, uh. A, a, but it took us a lot of work, I think, to get into AOS, to understand AOS. And we had to kind of make it our own a little bit Yeah, as well. yeah. We had to kind of, which is, a lot of the AOS setting is actually about creating more space for people playing to create their own stories. But, yeah, it's an interesting trade-off because, yeah. like, one of the ways you could see this is for as long as they were, if you are able to write a interesting, consistently engaging source book for your tabletop game that defines every aspect for a world... Mm. And can do so in a way without ever mentioning that it's for a miniatures or a tabletop game, then your fiction is probably strangling that tabletop game. Mm. Because it, to the extent that these things are about player creativity and kind of expressing yourself through your models and your painting, that's incompatible with having a per- fully fleshed out world whose boundaries are 100% defined. Yeah. That was the floor of the old world in Warhammer. There's definitely a conflict there. I think that um, AOS is on slightly the too open side of it yeah um i think um they've introduced like so the character overlords have really cool internal law basically the way that their mercantile culture works is really interesting but um it has no wider kind of impact to the game they have no wider connections to other factions yet you know yeah it yeah. feels like all the factions are very very separate apart from the ones that have appeared in the core books which is sylvaneth stormcast corn and nurgle like that, those are the kind of interconnected factions, it feels like, based on yeah, the yeah. books that have been released so far. Whereas 40k, I mean, it has the benefit of having you know, 20, 30 years of ongoing, consistent law behind it. Mm. But like we had, we had uh, just a few minutes ago, we had a massive discussion about the Xenos and their various kind of philosophical takes on a world. And that's the kind of, that's the brain food that AOS lacks. It doesn't have those kind of Yeah, same it's hooks. getting it slowly. Yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's a, a brand new game. Like, so it's, I like, you don't like expect the, it to come the logic of that game and things like the transference of souls between realms and things like For that sure, is yeah. becoming part of its mythology. Yeah. And I can imagine, you know, if, if we are in the beginning years of what was, you know, once Rogue Trader and like had law that made no sense, like... Mm. You know, like early 40k it had like half Eldar space marines and it was all just the soup of ideas. Yeah. It hadn't quite found its lines and boundaries and rules and logic yet. Mm. I think AOS will probably get there. Like, you know, it's just years from it and that's a different thing. And it's nice because 
it's nice to the extent that we can tell our own stories in that fiction and not worry that we're stepping on toes hmm. like to do that with 40k you have to kind of hand wave a bunch of like i, I find that aos's scope is it fits, it fits more kind of gratifyingly in my brain than 40k's does yeah because 40k's is almost like it's almost like a bit dismissive like well the universe is so vast and so pointless <laughs> that of course you can create your own forge world if you like <laughs> doesn't matter it doesn't fucking matter <laughs> Nothing matters whereas it feels like not that it quote unquote matters matters but it feels like if you carve out your own little chunk of one of the realms and decide mm. you're going to define it or carve out your own you know section of a particular storm host even if it's one of the official storm hosts you can kind of make that yours mm. like you have done with the hammers of sigma like you have a hammers of sigma force but it's obviously your own host yeah there hasn't been any of the books but it feels like a valid part of that universe yeah, yeah. because there's nothing there's nothing there to contradict it mm. but equally there's everything there to support it and it doesn't feel insignificant either if you know what i mean like yeah though I, i've become quite invested in my idea for a 40k force absolutely uh, and i think like i could fit battles into that context that feel like their own novel series and their own kind of movie series almost yeah and if you know i have a you know do that thousand sons force i'm thinking about doing and yeah. you know Ironman shows up one day with a cult uprising on your yeah. forge world that's a totally cool drama like yeah and also if you come up with primaris again i've created a you know a scenario where the imperium might try and kill it might be a case for exterminatus yeah it might yeah. be a, a clear case for exterminatus so sending the primaris into take me on makes sense um in terms of actually getting into the law it feels like 40k is much easier um they've got dedicated wikis the horrors heresy book series is excellent as we've mentioned before yeah um in aos probably the mortal realms podcast is probably the way to do it yeah the closest aos gets to some of the realm gate wars books but they're expensive and designed for a completely different purpose yeah it's tricky like aos doesn't have that yet um yeah, 40k doesn't have a single Bible for the setting either, though I think that the heresy novels are the best way in yeah. to kind of what it's about. I think, yeah, the that foundation. Actually, to be honest, before we go on actually on that point, that actually kind of answers our next question, oh, yeah. uh, which is from Andrew, who writes, Dear Minotaurs mostly, which is very appropriate. <laughs> nice. Um, I have no intention of building, painting, or playing with little men, but enjoy your new pod for the lore and the match reports. I'm partial to depth of detail and invention in my fiction, i.e. e.g., uh, China Mayerville's Kraken or, or John Meany, John Meany's Bone Song. Can you recommend any of the tie-in novels with this in mind, or anything else? Really great writing, not necessity. My background, which EW today, is you guys and walking past the shops and looking in the windows. <laughs> so in terms of like novels, you recommend? I think for me, it's definitely the horror. Yeah. So I'd recommend the Horus not Horus Heresy novels if you are interested in Age of Sigma specifically. My favorite Age of Sigma book that I've read so far is Call of Archaon. Hmm. Um. Like that's the thing that made me go like, yeah, I'm a chaos player in the setting. Like, yeah, it's that's the story of it's a it's a novel, but it's basically three novellas bolted together, each following a different champion of a different chaos god as they attempt to earn the favor of Archaon, who is the kind of chosen champion of all of the chaos gods, mm. and find a place in his Varangard, which is um, it's very evocative of each of the chaos gods. It's got good twists in it. It's sort of pretty grim in its focus on what it means to be a chaos champion and the kinds of things you got to do to stay a chaos champion. Yeah. But, um, I found it, I, I came away with it with lots of sense of the setting where I've, most of the other novels that I've read have been very stormcast centric mm. and I haven't really, like, I haven't felt like a character I've rooted for in them yet necessarily. Like they are very, it feels like Stormcast is still waiting for their like fun space marines to show up to right. some extent. If you know what I mean? Like, yeah. actually, there's, there's a few exceptions. Um, uh, the Celestial Vindicators are quite good fun because they are yeah. super angry all of the time. Hmm. Um, 
so yeah so maybe the um is it war beast i think war beast is the book that is just Cecil Vindicate is fighting a lot of corn and a lot of orcs, then a lot of corn with a lot of orcs. <laughs> uh, that's supposed to be a good one. I've not read it. Um, uh, there's a really good one. It was, I think it started as an audio series, um, and then was actually also written up as a novel uh, involving Manfred von Karstein and, um, the Stormcast. Oh, that's with the Hallowed Knights, right? Like, Hallowed Knights. Yeah, are, that's are a really good one. cool. And that's, that's a good one. I think that's good. Uh, so the Hallowed Knights first appear in the third Realm Gate Wars novel where they're fighting Nurgle. Yeah. And they're a bit boring because mm. they're super faithful and duty bound. Yes. They are basically the Imperial Fists of Age of Sigmar. Yeah. Um, very pious. Um, but like, yeah, the, the one where they go to the Realm of Death is, is the one where they gain a bit of, well, well they get some interesting foils, which is the main exactly thing. It's not right, just yeah, like, exactly. we are pious and you are Nurgle. Mm. Fight. It's, yeah. it's, you know, there's a bit more going on. They, they've got some of the best, they've got the best catchphrase as well, which is like, who will be victorious? Only, Only the faithful. faithful. Yeah. Which is their big battle chant. Uh, but also, like, they, um, uh, they're on a quest to find Nagash. And that's a really interesting thing for the Stormcast to be doing, given mm. what we've discussed previously on the pod about the War for Souls that, actually underpins age of sigmar as a as a concept yeah nagash is is the wronged party but also you know the most treacherous like yeah, sigmar was paired with nagash is the god of the dead so yeah yeah like... god of the dead but uh, sigmar was paired uh joined up with him several times and been betrayed by him over and over again and nagash is now like feels incredibly hard done by because um he was defeated so solid but solidly by archaeon and archaeon has repeatedly kept him down um and he but he still blames sigmar in some way for this because he's been denied the power that gets him I definitely think that's one thing that um, really cool angle one thing that aos has over 40k i think is a really good chaos villain mm. actually like archaeon's fantastic archaeon yeah. is fucking great yeah much so 40k i think 40k chaos is better developed in terms of like how it fits into the universe generally mm. sort of but actually like the best way to understand Archaon is he's like, what if Horus had survived for 10,000 years, not Abaddon? Because hmm. Abaddon is a fucking chump. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's, he's a, he's your least favorite member of the Mournival. Right. At the start of the Horus Heresy. Guy gets the most famous though. He gets the most famous, but he's like the shit member of the boy band that has the inexplicable successful solo career right. that you don't necessarily root for. Yeah. You know what I mean? Hmm. Like, um, I suppose that would make him the Robbie Williams of Chaos, but I like Robbie yeah. Williams, so that's not yeah, necessarily yeah. a fair comparison. Um, I know what you mean, though. Like, um, yeah, you know, he's sort of angry and petulant and wants what's his and doesn't have any kind of, like, integral cool. Like, Abaddon doesn't have any chill. That's my predominant issue with Abaddon. Gotta have chill. Horus yeah. does, mm. like, until he doesn't. Mm. Um, Archaeon is, like... Kind of the epitome of, well, he's as chill as you can be while riding a dragon with three heads, each threat head being a different greater demon from a different chaos god that your horse ate. Yes. <laughs> they sent their greatest champions. Your and horse his ate horse them. ate them. <laughs> His horse, not even him, he just stood back and let the horse do the thing. The horse ate them and now he has three heads and is a dragon. Yeah. Uh, amazing. And Ar- Archaon is like a chaos god in waiting, basically, or possibly the end of chaos like he's such a threat that he could end the chaos like the- yeah well his mission is to kill chaos yeah and possibly sigmar as well yeah because he's a fallen priest of sigmar yeah yeah who like he's, uh, he's fantastic threat he's really good then there's a great um there's a couple of great moments in the realm gate wars series with archaeon mm-hmm. where 
his sort of presence is so kind of because whenever he shows up you're fucked yeah like, it's not like another chaos they build up really well in the aos books actually yeah, yeah like um his appearance on the battlefield is mm. just like devastating and it matches his presence in the game to an extent as well mm. but like um so you know stormcast come back to life so minus spoilers vander's hammerhand mm. is the sort of unconquered champion of of um of sigmar for the vast majority of those books he does make sacrifices but he basically can't lose yeah. until he hits archaeon mm. and he does his heroic charge archaeon and archaeon decapitates his Drakoth and then kills him yeah like two swipes just gone and there's a great sort of image of as um vandis's soul returns to sigmar and as the lightning kind of bursts out of him archaeon just runs his fingers through it mm. and you see like sort of trails of like green and purple fire kind of like trace off archaeon's fingers yeah so, like, yeah what has he done there? Like, yeah, yeah. It's just, oh man, it's such a good. He's yeah. such a good presence in that fiction. Like, he is, uh, given that the sort of the, the ground level, what it's like to live in the Age of Sigmar is so underdeveloped. Mm. It's kind of big forces are really well realized. I think. Yeah. I, I love the idea of um, Archeons sitting at the center of the spider web of um, realm gates. Um, yeah. So, there's a, I can't remember what it's called. This is the All Points, isn't the it? The Varen Spire is his That's fortress his, at the All Points. Oh, he's got, um, I think we've talked about this before, but the throne that he never sits on because he's too busy conquering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and the Gaunt Summoners who serve him. But yeah, he's also like, he's got the chaotic uh, sort of almost next to the world with, with realm gates to every realm and that's what kind of Sigmar's trying to desperately take eventually um which is part of the what the realm gate wars are all about yeah yeah he, yeah Sigmar eventually succeeds in shutting off two of them mm. but not all of them no like the one of the best sequences in Call of Archeon which is one of the reasons I definitely recommend it is following the champion of Zinch that gets to who's mm. a major character in that book as he tries to break into the Varen so basically the Varen Spire um is not only like Archeon Citadel against forces of order, every champion from every realm, and there are millions of them, mm-hmm. because realms are so vast that millions of people are making millions of people who consider themselves champions are already already making this journey at any given time. They all collide in this one place. And so it is a constant battle between everybody. Right. Like forces of the same Chaos God fighting each other, temporary alliances and this kind of thing. Trying to get in to Archeon's fortress to ask him if they can become a Varangard. Mm. And it is surrounded by like the deadliest things imaginable. <laughs> like if you, so like even the drawbridges are like every like couple of minutes, they're swept by like, like columns of fire that just eradicate everything on them. Yeah. And there's a great sequence in that book, which is just about like one Zinch sorcerer champion trying to get through those defenses basically betraying every single person in front of him like Mm. um he has his own sort of retinue and he's basically sacrificing them one by one but there's a big chunk of like he's he bumps into some corn forces and says well if we work together and fight honorably you can have those skills and we'll all survive and just sort of pushes them in front of the next thing and it's like the thread you have to Mm. throw together yeah it's such a great evocative piece of like a very different kind of fiction to 40k which is sort of like an infinite fantasy war taking place in one place Mm that isn't even relevant to the principal conflict of that fiction because <laughs> right. it's just people vying it's just basically chaos apprentice yeah like it's a darwinian nightmare yeah mm. it's great that's that's fantastic um and okay not even there most of the time no he's not even there he's <laughs> not, not even, even there. there is the twist yeah uh, fantastic <laughs> um our final question 
comes from Alex, who writes, Hey guys, I'm absolutely loving the pod. I play other games, but having hear you guys talk about it, I found myself considering AOS. But my question, have you tried anything on a smaller scale? I love skirmish games. Small scale of the armies means I've got full armies for Infinity, Frostgrave, Guild Ball, not far off rounding off a full Batman gang. Not only that, but the games are shorter, so I have more chances to win on game night and not go home with a dangerously high sodium level. Have you tried any smaller scale games with a handful of models? My experience with GW is mainly the Lord of the Rings game when I was a teenager, and I remember moving around fistfuls of models and then waiting forever to do the same. Smaller scale games seem better paced to me, particularly Infinity, where you can react to your opponent's activations, or Guild Ball, where you alternate activating single models instead of each moving your entire armies. Loving both CNC and MM, particularly a hobby paint chat. Keep feeding the podcasts, Alex. Hmm. So we did actually talk about um, AOS Skirmish on a previous episode, which is more or less exactly this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd be interested in trying out some of the systems. It's just the, the time commitment and uh, yeah. of getting into multiple systems is is so great with miniature stuff. Shadow War is another alternative here. Yeah, which yeah, is basically, um, and, and actually Path to Glory, if, if it pans out to what it's supposed to be, where yeah. you sort of start with, it's not exactly miniature by miniature activations, but it's designed to build out your small games into something more substantial. Yeah, I mean, my favourite tabletop book, uh, game experience ever has come from more time, which was... Is um, yeah. a great skirmish game, uh, but that, a lot of that came from the persistence and the building warband building that happens between rounds as much as the game itself. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to play Shadow War at last. Yeah, yeah, I'll paint up those guitars soon. Yeah, I think that's yeah. So uh, maybe listen back to our discussion about skirmish and the game we played for that for me to see if that if that floats your boat. That was the last episode, wasn't it? Was it? No, it was the episode before. Oh, okay, because last episode four, was then. Prospero, so episode oh, yes. four. Yes, correct. Cool. Yeah, because episode four was the one we recorded immediately after Warhammer Fest. Oh, yeah. Good times. Good times. That is all of the questions we've got time for. It's been a long pod day. <laughs> and now it's time for a sweaty pod exit. Yes. If you'd like to send us a question for a future episode of Miniatures Monthly, you can do so by emailing us at miniatures at creatingcrowbar.com. You can also uh, follow this uh, podcast specifically at Minis Monthly where we post our pictures and some stuff we've been working on and that kind of thing. Uh, or just me having an increasingly eerie experience of the phrase thousand suns following me around. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, if you, uh, like you can also follow the Creighton Crowbar proper on Twitter at Creighton Crowbar. And this podcast is very kindly supported by our uh, Patreon backers, patreon.com forward slash Creighton Crowbar, who uh, by supporting the main Creighton Crowbar podcast allows us to do these spinoffs. Our intro and outro music, I've been forgetting to mention the last couple of, of episodes, is by Mike Debenham, very kindly provided to us for free, and it is spectacular. Uh, if you would like to hang out with our amazing and very active tabletop wargaming community, and indeed tabletop gaming generally community, you can do so on our Discord channel. You'll find the link on the website, creatingcrowbar.com, and on that channel you'll find a, a like a chat room called Table Talk. That's where the Table Talk happens. Indeed. If you'd like to follow us individually, Tom, where can people internet find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at PCG Ludo, um, though you're better off following the Minis Monthly account for pictures of my stuff as I'm doing it. And you can follow me on Twitter at C Thurston, that's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. Again, most of my miniature stuff goes on Minis Monthly now. However, I do also have a miniatures Instagram, which is Exit Warp, which is what happens to Ahriman in every game <laughs> yep. I use him in. Holy yeah, the warp exits him, or he exits to go back to the warp. Yep. Can't, he's never not exploding. Never not rolling double ones. Great. Well, mm. thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks Catch you next month. Everyone.